Welcome, welcome, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to this, the 15th edition of the Rambling Brews Podcast, hosted by me, the man they call Tim. What an unbelievable time it is to be a fan in the world of sports and entertainment. I mean, the NHL regular season is winding down, and playoff races and division races are undecided, so we're going to take a look at the standings and stats and some other news from around the NHL. We'll dive deep into that. Pat McAfee former West Virginia Mountaineer, former NFL All-Pro punter, and current sports media juggernaut has joined Michael Cole. Yes, that Michael Cole, the same guy, the old newscaster that joined WWF sometime in the late 90s. He had frosted tips, and The Rock used to always put his T-shirt over his head when he was interviewing him. Yes, that Michael Cole. Pat McAfee has joined him as an announcer on WWE Friday Night SmackDown. Just an unbelievable move for McAfee. We're going to dive into the fan reaction, his performance from his first show last Friday, and some potential ramifications for his radio show uh, because of his relationship with WWE. Also, what a world we're living in right now. I mean, my God, I'm sure much to the chagrin of boxing purists, Jake Paul, the YouTuber turned rapper, turned boxer is 3-0 as a professional fighter after he absolutely peppered former MMA fighter Ben Askren in just over a minute this past weekend. My big brother JTL will be joining me in a little bit to break down that fight, break down the sport of boxing in general, and discuss some upcoming marquee fights in the UFC. I think you guys are really going to enjoy that talk. And the other night I watched one of the most well-produced documentaries I've ever seen that I want to dive into. But first, as always, the mountains are blue. Another day, another pod, another cold Coors Light. This time next week, I'll be on a bird flying down south to Tampa Bay, Florida for a good buddy of mine, Dustin. He's getting married. I cannot wait. A couple other buddies coming in. It's going to be a blast to see everybody get down to Florida. Nice warm weather. Have a great time. Play some golf. It's going to be awesome. I cannot wait. And it got me thinking because on this trip, I'm going to get to do one of my favorite things in the world. And I'm sure there's probably a lot of people out there that are just like me, but I'm going to get to have an airport beer. Now, nothing, I mean, nothing sets the tone for a great vacation, like sitting down at your gate or sitting down at the restaurant in the airport getting a nice beer, watching some TV or talking to your family or whoever you're traveling with. It just really sets the tone. And I know some people don't like beer. So whatever you want to do, you want to get wine, you want to have a Bloody Mary, whatever the hell you want to have, but you got to set the vacation off right, or you're likely to have a bad time. So I cannot wait to do that. I hope you can still do that with COVID. I haven't flown at all. I could imagine um, you probably can. You probably just have to keep your distance and everything like that, but I cannot wait to do that. And it got me thinking, like I said, what are my top five situational beers? So like I said, airport beer, obviously that's going to be one of them, but I'm going to break down my top five beers, situational beers that is, and I cannot wait for the feedback on this because these are the top five times I think a beer is just one of the best things you can have on you. So number five, I'll go five to one. Number five is the sporting event beer. Now, I don't know, ever since I've been of age, I, I don't think I've ever attended a sporting event that served alcohol. I know for my first couple of years in college, I don't think they served alcohol uh, but then West Virginia became, <laughs> as everybody could probably predict, this would happen. They became one of the first universities um, to serve beer at football games. And they actually made you buy two. You had to buy two, which I never quite understood. Um, but hey, if you're going to sell beers to college kids and you make them buy two, 
I mean, they're going to buy more than two, but still incredible. So the sporting event beer, I think, is number five for me because usually they're just so expensive. Like if you go to a Penguins game or really any sporting event, but, you know, just talking from hockey perspective, it's like twelve fifty for a Bud Light or twelve fifty for a Coors Light or twelve fifty for, you know, any beer, really. And you, it's like 13 or fourteen fifty if you go for like the Stella or Trois. Um, so that that's the only reason, but it's it's just a great beer to have. You know, you're just sitting in the stands, you're having a good time watching your favorite team play. Got to crush a beer. Number four, this is one of the most underrated things, and I've been doing this for a long time. Maybe not so much recently as I've gotten older. It's probably frowned upon <laughs> as you approach thirty years old, but it's it's one of my favorite things to do, um, especially back in the day, is a shower beer. So like, it it really only works to me whenever you're like going out. You know, if it's a Friday night or something like that, or, you know, you're going to a party, you're going to a friend's house for a bonfire, you're going out to a bar or something like that. You got to crush a shower beer in terms of the, um, you know, the pregame, you got to get it going. Nothing hits more than a shower beer. So that's got to be on my list. And I know there's some people out there that definitely agree with me. Uh, Number three, the beer while you're grilling. So if you're out cooking and we've talked about this, I had my buddy Troy on the podcast um, early on whenever I kicked off this podcast and he was talking about, you know, smoking meats and grilling and all these different tips and tricks. And I love to grill. I like to cook in general. Um, but I always have to have a beer while I'm grilling. It's just something about that, especially in the summertime, you know, the birds are chirping, you smell a fresh cut grass, you're grilling up some burgers, hot dogs, whatever the case is, you know, and you got to be crushing a beer. So that's number three for me on the list. Number two, as I mentioned, is airport beer. I've already went over. It sets the tone for your vacation. Um, If you're a little bit afraid of flying, maybe you can get a little buzz going. Maybe you can continue drinking on the plane. Who knows whatever type of vacation you're going on. If you're going to a resort or a beach or something like that, you got to set the tone early. Um, So that's definitely number two on my list. And then number one, and I think I always, you know, my, my good buddy Troy always told me back in the day that this sport is why God invented beer, golf. You got to have beer while you're golfing. I can't imagine like how you could play golf unless you're like playing in a tournament or you're playing for money, you're playing for you know, professional, whatever you're in college, whatever it is. But it's really just you're out there having a blast with your buddies. It's nice weather. You're crushing a couple beers, laughing, telling jokes. It's one of the best times to have a beer. So that's number one for me on the list. And I know John Daly, uh, the, the great golfer who's just crushes beers and has like 97 cigarettes a day. He would always say, you know, I would have I would have been the best golfer in the world if they'd let me drink while I was playing. And that's true. I feel like, you know, <laughs> you, you tend to play a little bit better whenever you uh, you loosen up a little bit. So that's my favorite beer in the world um, as far as situational beers goes is, is a golf beer. So swig a beer for all the beers I just talked about. And uh, please tweet me at Rambling Brews or text me or um, at Rambling Brews podcast on Instagram and let me know what some of your favorite situational beers are. But I bet I bet. Most of the people that like to drink beer and like to listen to this podcast probably have a similar list to me. So swiggle beer for that. And as I mentioned in the intro, I want to check in on the NHL standings as the NHL playoffs are right around the corner. For some teams, there's 10 games left in the season. Some teams, there's 15, depending on some of the COVID outbreaks and things like that that have happened or postponed games. But the playoffs are right around the corner, and some of these teams that are trying to get into the playoffs or trying to hold on to a playoff spot, they've got some work to do. And I want to break down the NHL standings right now. So we'll start with the North Division. The North Division is being led as it has been throughout the duration of this season by the Toronto Maple Leafs. They've got 61 points, 28 wins, 12 losses, and five overtime losses through 45 games. Uh, They're actually playing the Vancouver Canucks right now um, as I'm recording this on Tuesday night. And 
it's pretty crazy because Vancouver, they're the team I talked about last week that had the COVID-19 like Brazilian variant outbreak where they had 25, 30, like people in their organization were, their organization was riddled with COVID from the players to the coaches, to the training staff, to the players' families, um, executives, everybody really. And they missed about three weeks of time, maybe a little bit over three weeks where they really weren't allowed to train. They weren't allowed to be at the facility. They weren't allowed to practice, not allowed to skate. So it's pretty unbelievable. And they only had uh, I think two skates, one formal practice, I want to say, before they had to come back and play the Maple Leafs this past Sunday night. And what do they do? They rally. They get down early 2 nothing. Braden Holpe playing a little bit, eh, not so great in the first period. Rallies, plays unbelievable in the second two periods, stops 37 shots in the game. The Vancouver Canucks captain, Bo Horvat, just an absolute stud. Scores two goals. They come back to win the game 3-2 in overtime. And, and I mentioned Holpe. He's having an up and down year this year. I mean, it really a lot of people are in uh, Vancouver, but Hopi, he, he had one of the best saves I've ever seen in my life the other night, um, that Sunday night against the Maple Leafs. He was he looked like Dominic Hasek, the dominator, uh, one of the best goalies of all time. He he sprawled out. He did like a he was laying on his back and he did like a windmill save, pad stacker save to stop one. Um, just an unbelievable save, save of the year, if you ask me. I'm sure you've seen it all over Twitter. I'll tweet it out from at Rambling Brews. Um, on Twitter. And it's just one of the most uh, unbelievable performances of the year. You got to give credit to Vancouver. They came out, like I said, very limited practice time. They were missing eight or nine guys. I believe their head coach said eight or nine regular players. Um, Travis Green, their coach, he was so proud of his team after. And how could you not be? Um, just unbelievable for them. And you never know. We, we'll see what happens here. We'll get to them in a second with their point total. But they might be able to get into the playoffs. But I, I think it'll be a little bit of a stretch. But that's definitely something to build on and something to build in your room with character and everything, how they were able to come out and win. And isn't that the most Maple Leafs thing of all time, though? Like, I saw it all over Twitter. People are just roasting the Maple Leafs. They've been a wagon this entire year. And then a team that hasn't played in three weeks, can't practice, has been riddled with illness, and they're exhausted and all that stuff. I'm sure they're way out of shape um, just compared to what you normally would be and what the Maple Leafs are. And then the Maple Leafs lose the game. They're up 2 nothing, blow the lead. Um, so it's crazy to go to overtime and lose to a team that, you know, just hasn't been able to be playing at all. It's just a horrible move um, and a classic Maple Leafs thing to do. So I, I enjoyed that just from a, a fan perspective. Um, staying in the North Division in second place, the Winnipeg Jets, really surprising some teams this year. Um, I had them pegged as, you know, a pretty solid team. I wasn't sure they were going to make the postseason. Um, but, and they lost line a early in the year, but they're really rallying. They're playing well. Paul Maurice, their head coach is a great coach. He's got this team rolling. They're at 57 points through 45 games. So 27 wins, 15 losses and three overtime losses. Um, I think they're really going to be in the playoffs here for sure. They've got a 16 point lead on Calgary. Who's the first team out, uh, right below them, the Edmonton Oilers, 56 points through 44 games. So they've got 27 wins, 15 losses and two overtime losses. And the way they're playing, I mean, anything could happen. The other night, McDavid, just unbelievable, turns on the Jets, blows by these guys like they're in beer league and scores. He could basically score at will when he wants. Same with Dreisaitl. But who else on that team is going to score? You know, if you shut them down, I said this last week, I'm not really sure what kind of noise they can make in the postseason. But I think they're definitely going to make it. Again, they're 15 points um, up on the Calgary Flames to the first team out. And then the four spot, the Montreal Canadiens, they've got 47 points through 43 games, 19 wins, 15 losses, and nine overtime losses. So they've only got a six-point cushion on the Calgary Flames, but they have played two less games. So I think they're pretty much going to lock that spot up. I mean, 13 games to go for them. 
uh, and they got a six-point cushion, I, I think it would take a pretty decent collapse for them to miss. So I think those will be your top four playoff teams again, Toronto, Winnipeg, Edmonton, Montreal. But it'll be interesting to see how the seeding works out because between Edmonton and Winnipeg, they're only one point apart, and then those teams are four and five points apart, respectively, from the Maple Leafs. So you never know what could happen with these back-to-backs and these two- and three-game series coming up against those teams. And it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, switching over to the East Division, the Washington Capitals sit atop the division um, right now. They, I believe it's based on regulation and overtime wins. I don't have the number in front of me, but they have 62 points, 29 wins, 13 losses, and four overtime losses. They're actually tied exactly with the New York Islanders at 62 points. The Islanders also 29, 13, and four. But as I said, I think they're uh, the Capitals are in first because of the regulation and overtime wins. The shootout wins go out the window. They get taken away in the tiebreaker. Um, the first tiebreaker. So that's why you see the Capitals at the top of the division. And these teams have been right up there the whole time, um, all season. So you got to figure they're definitely the cream of the crop here. And they're going to make the, they're, they're going to make the playoffs for sure. The Pittsburgh Penguins right behind them. Uh, they're at 61 points through 46 games, 29 wins, 14 losses and three overtime losses. So one point behind the Capitals and Islanders, they've all played 46 games. So it's it's really tight at the top of that division. The Penguins actually, uh, as I'm recording this tonight, they just came off a really ridiculous game against the New Jersey Devils. They were up six to nothing. I believe four or five nothing. Yeah, five nothing after the first. Then they scored early in the second to make it six nothing. Ended up winning the game seven to six, seven to six. So almost a monumental collapse there. I mean, that would have been a disaster if they blow that lead and they're down or they're up six nothing and lose the game. But they it, all that matters right now is the two points and they got it. They secured it. So the fourth team in the division who the Penguins are three points up on is the Boston Bruins. They've got 58 points through 44 games, 26 wins, 12 losses and six overtime losses. So they sit in the fourth spot and they're six points out on the New York Rangers. Um, and the New York Rangers have been playing really well lately. Um, they're playing unbelievable. They've got the best goal differential in the division at plus 28, and they've been scoring at will. Uh, Mika Zibanejad, early in the season, he had COVID, and he got off to a slow start, but he's been absolutely on fire lately. Panarin, we've talked about him at nauseum. He's playing unbelievable hockey. Um, they, they're just you know a wagon right now, maybe just a little bit too little, too late, but they're only six points out. They could go on a little bit of a run here, but Boston has played two less games than uh, the Rangers, Penguins, Islanders, and Capitals. So a lot uh, left here to be uh, decided, but I think the top four teams that are going to make the playoffs are the four teams that are sitting in playoff spots right now, the Caps, Islanders, Penguins, and Bruins. Moving on to the Central Division, the Carolina Hurricanes sit atop the division with 65 points. They've got 30 wins, 10 losses, and five overtime losses through 45 games. And they're tied in points with the Florida Panthers, who have 65 points as well. But the Panthers have played 47 games. So pretty crazy to see Carolina and Florida. Just thinking about the history over the last, you know, I guess, seven to ten years, those two teams were just bottom feeder teams pretty much. And they're sitting atop the division playing really, really good hockey right now. Uh, Tampa Bay Lightning, they're in third place. They've got 62 points through 46 games. So 30 wins, 14 losses, and two overtime losses for them playing great as well. I mean, I, it's hard to believe that division is so strong that the Tampa Bay Lightning, who I think are still the Stanley Cup favorite in the Eastern Conference, or I guess what would be the Eastern Conference, it'll, it'll, uh, it remains to be seen how it'll play out as the playoff seeds and everything like that are decided as we go forward here. But it's crazy to see them as a three seed like in the, in their division, but still a lot, a lot left to play here. Uh, there's 10 games left for the lightning 
nine for the Panthers and 11 for the Carolina Hurricanes. And in that four spot, 11 points behind the Tampa Bay Lightning are the Nashville Predators. This is a little bit of a tight race for this four spot here. This might be one of the only divisions where um, I guess the West is too. We'll get to it in a minute, but where there's actually a chance that a team gets ousted that's in the top four right now. The Nashville Predators have 51 points through 47 games. There are 25 wins, 21 losses, and one overtime loss. And then right behind them are the Dallas Stars who have 18 wins, 14 losses, and 12 overtime losses. 12 overtime losses is just stupid um, in 44 games. But they've got 48 points, so three points behind the Nashville Predators. And then you've got Chicago. We've talked about them a lot, too. They played really well to start the season, kind of tapered off. They recently recently got uh, Kirby Dock back, one of their best young centermen. I think he's playing wing because he's coming off a leg injury. He got hurt in practice at the World Juniors back in December, right before the season started. But he's back. He's playing um, so there's still a chance that they can make some noise. They're four points back at 47 points um, of the Nashville Predators. So it's almost like a six-team race there, I guess, for the playoffs. But it's really the top three are solidified in Carolina, Florida, and Tampa. And then it's the Predators, Dallas Stars, and Chicago Blackhawks fighting for that last spot. Um, so anything can happen there. I, I can't wait to see how that plays out. But I can't imagine that whoever gets that spot is going to beat one of the top three teams, whoever ends up securing that one seed. Uh, but still would be pretty awesome for them to make the playoffs and get good experience for their young players. The West Division, I mentioned, this also has a similar um, race to, for the four seed, but the top of the division is the cream of the crop of the NHL entirely. I mean, you've got the Vegas Golden Knights. They're at 66 points, so 32 wins, 11 losses, and two overtime losses through 45 games right below them. They're at, uh, or right below them is the Colorado Avalanche. They've got 64 points. At 30 wins, 9 losses, 4 overtime losses through 43 games. And their goal differential is plus 53, the Avalanche. And the Vegas Golden Knights in that same division right behind them at plus 50. Those are absurd numbers. Like, I think um, the, the next highest is the Carolina Hurricanes in the league, and they're at plus 38. So pretty remarkable what Vegas and Colorado have been able to do. Um, Colorado actually just... Uh, had a little bit of a COVID-19 outbreak with Miko Rantanen and a couple other players. So they're still waiting to see if they're going to have some games postponed. We'll talk about that in a minute with Rantanen. Uh, but you never know what's going to happen. But they're two two games at hand on the Vegas Golden Knights and only two points back. So the Avalanche are in the driver's seat right now. Right below them, again, the Minnesota Wild playing unbelievable hockey. Uh, Kirill Kaprizov still playing well, uh, leading that team. They're getting great goaltending um, out of Cam Talbot and Capo Kakinen. And they've got 59 points through 44 games, 28 wins, 13 losses, and three overtime losses. So they're five points back of Colorado and seven points back of Vegas. So they could still potentially get up there, but I think Vegas and Colorado are just a little bit better um, caliber team than the Minnesota Wild are. And then here's where you get the race. So the Arizona Coyotes, which is pretty crazy to see still at this point in the season with 10 games to go for them. They're sitting in the four spot with 45 points through 46 games. So 20 wins, 21 losses, and five overtime losses. So imagine a team being under 500 that's going to make the playoffs, but it's it's possible here. And then you've got the uh, San Jose, or sorry, the St. Louis Blues right behind them with 44 points. So one point less than the Arizona Coyotes through 43 games. So three games at hand on the Coyotes. They've got 19 wins, 18 losses, and six overtime losses. So they're one point back, as I said. They've got three games um, less played than the Arizona Coyotes, so the, the Blues, I'd say, are in the driver's seat for that spot. And then San Jose, they've had a little bit of a resurgence recently, but I don't think they're a playoff team. They're three points behind the St. Louis Blues. They've played two more games than the Blues. 
Um, and the Sharks, they're four points behind the Coyotes. As I mentioned, the Coyotes are one point up on the Blues. So I don't think the Sharks really can make it. I'm not sure they want to make it. I mean, obviously, you want to try to make the playoffs and anything can happen, but I think they're going to get dummied. Whoever gets that four seed is just going to get shit pumped by either Vegas or Colorado. So it's a death sentence if you if you get that. But you might get some valuable experience again for some young guys. So uh, those are the standings right now as we sit here on April 20th as I'm recording this. And, you know, it's pretty crazy because – I didn't think it would be this tight. I thought there were teams, you know, and we've we've gone over my playoff picks and everything like that, but I thought there would be teams that really separate themselves. But every division is pretty much tight, maybe not one to four in each division as far as the playoff spots go, but the top seeds are up for grabs in every division. The four seeds pretty much uh, solidified in two of the divisions. So you got some things to look forward to over the last 10, 12 games here. So swig a beer for the NHL, swig a beer for the playoffs, because this is the best time of year if you're a hockey fan. And if you're listening to this podcast, it's going to be great. So come along for the ride, grab a Coors Light and take a swig. I wanted to pivot over and talk about the NHL stats leaderboard a little bit. I know it's been a couple of weeks since we've looked at it, and you can probably uh, assume it's the same usual suspects at the top of the leaderboard for both goals and assists, but I wanted to dive into it here as we're approaching the playoffs. Connor McDavid right now, he sits atop the NHL with 74 points through 44 games. That's a 94-point pace, just an incredible pace. I know on, on earlier episodes, I mentioned at one point this season, he was on pace for over 100 points in a 56-game season, but you can't knock him at 94-point pace. That's unbelievable, and I bet he's got a few four- or five-point games you know, up his sleeve here coming up, so that'll probably go up, and he might yet get to 100. But the best thing I saw about McDavid this week is he joined an elite list. He became, since 1995-96, the seventh fastest player to reach the 70 point mark. He did so in 43 games. And when you look at the rest of this, you know, these guys that did this, so the other six guys, all six of them, much to my delight, are Pittsburgh Penguin players. So Mario Lemieux in 1995-96 hit 70 points in 25 games. Let me give that to you one more time. (laughs) 70 points in 25 games. That is ridiculous. Almost three points a game there. Then in that same season, Yarmir Yager scored 70 points through 34 games. So it took him nine more games than Lemieux, but he hit the 70 point mark. So how productive was that team? Unbelievable to watch. Then in 1999-2000, Yarmir Yager again scored 70 points through 38 games. Then in 96-97, Mario Lemieux scored 70 points through 40 games uh in 95 96 ronnie francis did it in 40 games and then in mario lemieux again in 2000 2001 this is the most remarkable one he did it in 41 games but he had just come off of retirement he'd been out for three years his first year back after a three-year retirement he picks up at that pace and puts in 70 points in his first 41 games after three years of retirement. So unbelievable stats, and it's great to be a Penguins fan. I've talked about that a lot, how we've just been blessed with Lemieux and Yager and Kovalev and Crosby and Malkin and all these guys, all these Hall of Famers. We've arguably had the best player in the NHL since 19, probably 89, somewhere in there when I think Lemieux took it over from Gretzky, in my opinion. Obviously, I wasn't alive, but just from all the research and things I've done, you know, he was unbelievable. Really drafted in 84, but you know, you had the eighties where the Oilers were winning all the Stanley Cups, So you got to give it to Gretzky there, but really since 89, 90, 
it was Lemieux all the way up to the rest of his career. And then Yager took over from there and then Crosby and Malkin. So the Penguins fans have been blessed, but it's an elite list that Connor McDavid joined. So you got to take a swig of beer for that. Secondly, on the stats here, Leon Dreisaitl right behind his teammate McDavid. He's got 63 points through 44 games. And then right behind him is Patrick Kane, 57 points through 46 games. So those guys are having incredible seasons as well. Um, there's a number of guys that are right below them. They're all tied with, you know, right around 55, 53 points. Um, but scoring it is, is, you know, these guys are really producing this year. So uh, kudos to those three. For goals, Austin Matthews having a hell of a season. He's missed a couple games, but he's got 33 goals this year. Just absolutely lighting the lamp. It seems like every night he scores. I mean, he's got one of the most lethal releases I've ever seen in NHL history. He does like a quick little curl and drag, and it's on and off his stick, in and out of the net before the goalie even knows what the hell happened. So he's been an absolute treasure to watch. Miko Rantanen, I mentioned he's on the COVID uh, protocol list when we were talking about the Colorado Avalanche and the standings update. He has 26 goals this year, playing unbelievable hockey. Last year, if you remember, he was on pace really to win the scoring title, maybe two-thirds of the way through the season, and then the avalanche kind of fell off a cliff for a month or so. So I knew he was going to pick back up. I didn't think he'd be this productive from goal-scoring-wise. He's more of a playmaker, but he is a winger, so you got to give it to him, 26 goals on the season. And since March 1st, he has 18 tucks one more than Ovechkin and one more than Matthews in that span. So pretty crazy, but we'll see how it impacts him and impacts the Colorado Avalanche now that he's on the COVID-19 list. It could be a false positive. You know, knock on wood, I'll knock on wood right now. Um, you know, it could be a false positive. Hopefully he'll be back. He'll be better than ever and still lighting the lamp for the Avalanche because they're going to need him down the stretch here if they want to compete with Vegas, as we talked about, for the West Division title. Um, and then right behind him, Connor McDavid. McDavid, 24 goals this year. He's tied with Alexander Ovechkin, also in that same spot with 24 goals. And Ovechkin has 17 goals in his last 22 games. So I know uh, I might have to eat a little bit of crow with some of my buddies that are Capitals fans. I talked about maybe, you know, Ovechkin kind of falling off the cliff a little bit. He wasn't very productive early on in the season. Maybe he looked a little bit disinterested, you know, but he's been playing great recently. And the Capitals have been playing unbelievable. And now he's starting to pick his game up. Like I said, 17 tucks in his last 22 games. You really can't knock that pace and, you know, it, it, it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility for him to catch Matthews with 10 games to go, but he's nine he's nine goals back with 10 games left, uh, but I wouldn't count Ovechkin out. He could easily, like I said with McDavid, going out and getting four or five points in a couple games, Ovechkin can easily get a hat trick, four goals here, just, you know, start racking up goals left and right. So never count him out, but I think Austin Matthews will win the Rocket Richard Trophy for the first time, so that's going to be pretty awesome for him and pretty awesome for Maple Leafs fans. So swig a beer for Matthews, Rantanen, McDavid, Novechkin for just continuing to light the lamp. Staying in the NHL, a couple big stories. Patrick Marlowe, what an unbelievable guy. I talked about him right before the trade deadline, how he was kind of bouncing around, and he's chasing a cup and everything like that, but... He just passed Gordy Howe, Mr. Hockey, the inventor of the Gordy Howe hat trick. And for those who don't know what a Gordy Howe hat trick is, it's a goal, an assist, and a fight. So this guy was tough as nails, just an absolute beauty, one of the best hockey players of all time, top five for sure. Uh, Patrick Marlowe just passed him for most games played in NHL history with 1,768 games. Now, it's pretty crazy to think about because a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how Sidney Crosby just played his 1,000th game, and he was drafted in 2005. 
Patrick Marlowe was drafted in 1997 at the old Civic Arena in Pittsburgh. And 1997? Connor McDavid was born in 1997, just to put it in perspective. And he's still playing, still playing at an elite level. Um, up until a year or two ago, he was using the same skates he was using when he came into the league. And when they discontinued those skates, uh, he bought all the leftovers from the company, but he finally ran out of them a couple years ago, and he's been changing his skates. So just just an unbelievable guy. He's one of the best guys in the NHL. Nobody has ever had a bad word to say about him. Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner really loved playing with him whenever he had that one year um, in Toronto. They learned a lot from him, and you got to attribute, I think, some of their success to his leadership and some of the things he may have taught them about being a pro, but... He's played a very long time, um, all but a year and a half in San Jose. He's beloved in San Jose. Um, it was pretty cool to see some of the teams he's played in the last couple of weeks as he's you know getting close to the record, uh, the Golden Knights, you know the LA Kings, some of these teams that are big rivals with the Sharks. They're all waiting in line to shake his hand, and it's just pretty cool to see. You know, it's not every day you get to see somebody play 1,768 games in the NHL, and he isn't showing any signs of slowing down. So we'll see what happens because he's still he's still a San Jose Shark, and like I mentioned, they're not probably not going to make the playoffs. So I would imagine he'll probably be back next year if he's still you know raring to go and he wants to win that Stanley Cup. We'll see what happens, but. You know, continued success to to Patrick Marlowe. I did want to mention in those seventeen hundred and sixty eight games, he has five hundred and sixty six goals. So a member of the five hundred goal club, remarkable. Six hundred and thirty assists and eleven hundred ninety six points. So swig a beer for Patrick Marlowe. An unbelievable career. Um, many more games, hopefully. And you, you just got to respect somebody that has the longevity, the durability, and the, the ability to produce in seventeen hundred and sixty eight professional hockey games. The last thing I wanted to talk about in the NHL was Pierre Maguire. He's a former Penguins assistant coach back in the day. I think everybody that probably listens to this podcast, or at least most people know who he is. He's an NBC analyst now. He's actually really good in the color commentator role. Uh, I think he does a great job, you know, and I know people hate on him and people give him flack. And I know Penguins fans back in the day used to think that he hated the Penguins and they would call him Regis because that's his real name, I believe. But the guy used to have a sign uh, (laughs) right behind Pierre Maguire that stood in between the benches um, that said Regis with an arrow and stuff. And NBC wasn't happy about it and Pierre wasn't happy about it. But I digress on that. But Pierre Maguire made some comments this uh, past weekend on a broadcast on NBC whenever the Buffalo Sabres were playing the Pittsburgh Penguins. And he basically mentioned that, and I agree wholeheartedly with him, that Sidney Crosby is the most disrespected player in NHL history. Disrespected a great player. Because he really has never been accepted as the, like, there's, there's people out there that just can't stand him. They hate him. Whether you're a Flyers fan or you're not a Penguins fan, you could be a fan of any team or you don't have a brain or you don't understand anything about the game of hockey. You don't like Sidney Crosby, but he's never really gotten the treatment that Wayne Gretzky got or the treatment that Gordie Howe got or the treatment that Mario really gets. The guys that he's in that same class with, we've been over that. He's a top five player of all time. And until people start saying it and until people start believing it and keep saying it over and over and over again and he's in those lists, because he rightfully deserves to be there. Anybody that knows anything about the game of hockey knows that from the era he plays in, how influential he is, how important he is to the game, how productive he is, how many Stanley Cups he's won, how consistent he's been, how much of a pro he's been. He's in that conversation 100% for me and 100% really for anybody that knows anything, I think, for a top five player of all time. But he never got the treatment that Gretzky got. There's guys around the league. We talked about it with Brandon Dubinsky. I mean, Brandon Dubinsky 
made some comments about, and he played in the league with Crosby and he, he made some just ridiculous comments about him. Comments that like Crosby obviously didn't care about because the windshield never cares what the bug has to say. So like Crosby's handled everything perfect. It's just unbelievable that he hasn't really gotten the respect. You know, there's players in the league, I'm sure that respect his game and respect him. But ever since Ken Hitchcock in 2005, 2006, who was the coach of the Flyers at the time, he planted that bullshit narrative that Crosby was just a whiny little bitch. And he whined a lot. I'll give you that. He whined a lot back in the day. But he was 18 years old. And he's being, you know, he's getting his teeth and his eyes gouged and stuff by Darian Hatcher that year. Like, Darian Hatcher, for any, you know, Penguins fans or any any hockey fans really, know that he's an absolute, just a mutant out there. When he played in Philadelphia, he spent some time in Dallas as well. And it's really never gotten away from him. Like if you've watched Crosby over the last decade, he's not bitching at the referees or yelling at the referees or crying about anything any more than anybody else. There's plenty of videos out there of guys that have accused him of doing it in the past, like Ryan Callahan or Alex Ovechkin is always over there yelling at the officials. That's what they do. They're captains. They talk to the officials, but for some reason, Crosby just never really got the respect. And I think Pierre Maguire hit the nail on the head, and I, I 100% agree with him. I know some people didn't think, or some people may have just not understood what he was saying, but I don't think Crosby's ever been universally accepted as the best player in the NHL by everybody. I know everybody knows it, but nobody wants to admit it. And I think I, I, I 100% agree with Pierre Maguire. I'm glad he said it. So swig a beer for Pierre Maguire for having the cojones to do it and having the cojones to call out the media members and, and other people around the league that refuse to give Crosby the respect he deserves. I wanted to bring that up on this podcast. So salute to Sidney Crosby. And I never thought in my life I would say this, but salute and swig a beer for Pierre Maguire. He does still rock those Penguin Stanley Cup rings from the 91-92 team <laughs> uh, when he's on the broadcast. You can see his big ring, so. Hell, I would too if I was a Stanley Cup champion. I'd rock that ring all the time. Um, switching gears a little bit over to the world of professional wrestling, I mentioned in the intro that Pat McAfee, um, the former all-pro punter in the NFL, former West Virginia grad, um, now media uh, mogul, basically, taking over. He's got one of the biggest YouTube uh, shows and biggest serious XM shows going right now for sports um, all over the place. He was a wrestler in NXT, uh, he had pr- arguably the best debut match in wrestling history, and even wrestling historians, uh, like the man Jim Cornette, said the same thing. And it's pretty crazy when you get wrestling historians that know everything that would say, and they've they've seen every match, and they would say that McAfee, um, for a guy that really isn't a wrestler and didn't have all that much training, unbelievable debut. But he really everything he does, he really does a great job at it. But as I said in the intro, he's joined Michael Cole on the announce team for uh, WWE Friday Night SmackDown. And it's pretty crazy because I think most of the WWE fans don't like McAfee. And it's probably because either A, they don't know him or he's just, they're wrestling fans and they don't like the outsiders. Because typically wrestling, especially WWE, they always brought these like celebrities in or they brought these um, athletes in or whatever the case is. And they always present them as if they're a bigger star than the wrestler. So I'm sure it drives the wrestlers nuts and and the pure wrestling fans nuts because they're always presented as they're just way better than, you know, these wrestling guys that work for the company. And you can understand it because they want it, they want it to be like, you know, a global phenomenon and they want everybody from all entertainment circles and 
fans of that person, whether they like wrestling or not, to see that, oh, wow, he's doing great. And he's, you know, he's having a good performance and all that stuff. So I get the hate for him a little bit. Um, and he's a heel. He's a natural heel. He's great at it. You know, when he was in the ring with Adam Cole and he was doing promos, he was an unbelievable promo. We talked about that. He's just a natural heel. He knows how to get under people's skin. He knows how to piss people off. And that's exactly what he's doing. And I'm hoping that in this role, he'll do that. Because in the 90s, whenever they had Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler, Jerry Lawler, the king, he was the heel announcer. He was the guy that always agreed with the heel. He was always talking about how Triple H was the man or The Rock was an idiot or The Rock had no chance of beating Triple H or Stone Cold was an idiot for trying to cross Vince McMahon and stuff like that. Like it was entertaining as hell when he'd make a one-off comment and stuff like that. Like, and that's what I think they need now. They just have too many like generic cookie cutter bullshit announcers. And that's no knock on those guys because they're doing the best they can. But McAfee really has the personality. So I'm really hoping that he's able to show that personality. Um, and I understand the hate for him from the fans. And another thing that I think really hurts his case in terms of the fans hating him is the guy that he replaced is Samoa Joe. So for wrestling fans out there, Samoa Joe, he spent a lot of time in um, TNA Impact back in the day. He was the Samoan submission machine. Um, one of the best entrance musics of all time. This guy's a badass, man. He he looks like he could legitimately kick anybody's ass. And um, I mean, he probably could. He's a big dude. He's got the, he used to do like, I don't know if it was a full Nelson or whatever the hell his, his finishing move was, but it was called like the, the Samoan, he was the Samoan submission machine, as I mentioned. And, you know, everybody loved him. Everybody liked him as a wrestler, but he was an outstanding announcer. And just a day before McAfee gets announced to take this job, Samoa Joe unexpectedly gets released from WWE kind of out of nowhere. And like nobody saw that coming, even like people with the dirt sheets and stuff like that. And people that follow it and people that report on it and people that know the ins and outs of wrestling and, and are on the inside, or at least have connects on the inside. So it's pretty crazy. I think when you combine that with McAfee being an outsider, a celebrity, a guy that people per, you know perceive as not really respecting the business, even though if you know anything about McAfee, all he has is respect for the business. He's trained with legends like Rip Rogers and, you know, he, he's shown nothing but respect. And when he got there, he delivered. So I, I definitely got to give him a chance. I mean, on Friday night, I watched a little bit of his, of his stuff and it was, it was really electric, man. Right at the beginning, he's calling himself Mr. Friday night and stuff like that. And it's really heelish and I love it. And he was very critical of himself on his um, radio show this past week, but or I, I guess um, this past Monday, he was very critical of himself. And I like that. You know, I like that he's trying to, he's really, it shows that he's really taking it seriously. He wants to do a good job. I'm not sure Michael Cole's the best broadcast partner for him because that guy is just so generic anymore. It's unbelievable. But, you know, you got to give kudos to Pat McAfee. He always seems to excel. And I think, you know, fans will come around to him and they really enjoy his heelish character if he's allowed to do that. If he's allowed to be himself, if he's allowed to make fun of uh, Michael Cole the way Jerry Lawler made fun of Jim Ross, if he's allowed to be a heel, he's allowed to make comments, he's allowed to have freedom, he's not having Vince McMahon screaming in his ear and what he's supposed to say like all the other announcers, so they just sound like they're just they're just there. They're not really enhancing the, the product at all. So I think McAfee's a, a slam dunk home run pickup for the WWE. But on that note too, like I know Mark Madden. So any, anybody that doesn't know um, Pittsburgh sports, Mark Madden is a legend here in Pittsburgh. He's the biggest radio host probably in the city, um, the city's history, probably in terms of sports radio. And he has a podcast, a wrestling podcast with Mike Mansuri. So Mike Mansuri worked for WWE. Now he works for PMI, which is Pat McAfee Inc. And they have a wrestling podcast. They just started. I think they're maybe eight to 10 episodes in and it's pretty good. And anybody that knows anything about Madden, he's, he doesn't hold back his opinion. He's been critical of WWE 
you know, very critical at times. He's been critical of AEW. You know, he's pretty much fair and balanced in terms of his wrestling commentary. And I saw today as I'm recording this that they were supposed to have their episode drop, but it, nothing came out. And then Madden started tweeting like, "Uh oh, I'm being shadow banned by the McAfee show." So. And him and McAfee are really good buddies. They've been friends for a long time. As I said, McAfee grew up here in Pittsburgh. And, you know, as he's rising up through the ranks as a local athlete in soccer and football and all that, him and Madden, you know, developed a relationship. So it's really weird because I think what's happening is, and I, this is all alleged. I'm not, I don't, I'm not any insider or anything like that. But from what I'm seeing from a distance is Vince McMahon knows that that podcast, potentially things could be said that are negative towards, um, the, the WWE. So I wonder if he's putting a stop to it. And he's saying to McAfee, Hey, if you want to do this, you know, if this is your dream you want to do this, you want to make money, you want to travel, you want to be a wrestling announcer and all that stuff. then you gotta, you gotta disassociate yourself from this. And that's definitely something Vince McMahon would do. He, he tries to control everything. I mean, they won't let their independent contractors of what these wrestlers are, but they're not allowed to have Twitch or anything like that. They're not allowed to do any, podcasts, all, all that stuff, WWE gets a cut of it, even though they're independent contractors. That's a whole different debate for a whole different day. And I think the U.S. government, uh, mainly like guys like Andrew Yang, have been taking up um, maybe a little bit of a fight against WWE for that and, and their lobbyists to keep them as independent contractors, even though they're exclusively employed by WWE and unable to work for anybody else. But again, I digress. That's a different uh, subject for a different day. But it, it's it's going to be interesting to see how because McAfee's show is very um, uncensored. It's not like you know uber vulgar or anything like that, but it's just like you know his him and his buddies having a good time talking. He's got people coming on there. It's a comfortable setting. They can say what they want, things like that. It's no, there's no pressure of like stupid media questions and stuff like that. So it'll be interesting to see how this impacts his show. Hopefully it doesn't. It's one of the best shows going, as I said. Um, I watch it all the time. Um, but I'm going to continue to watch SmackDown to see how McAfee does, but I bet he hits it out of the park. I just hope it doesn't change his his um, other, I guess, other areas that he's working on and his personality and stuff like that because I know Vince McMahon can be very demanding. So it'll be uh, it'll be crazy to see how it goes, but more power to McAfee, the pride of Pittsburgh. Swig a beer for him. Staying in the world of combat sports, I think now is a perfect time to send it over to my buddy JTL. What an unbelievable interview it was. I really think you guys are going to enjoy it. I had a blast. We broke down the Triller pay-per-view event, Jake Paul versus Ben Askren, Dustin Poirier versus Conor McGregor, the state of boxing, and the world of professional wrestling through an MMA fan's eyes. So enjoy the hell out of this interview. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a pleasure to welcome back to the Rambling Bruce podcast, a man who I consider a combat sports expert. This man has been training in various mixed martial arts and following the sport since well before jabronis were driving around with tap-out stickers on their cars and wearing affliction shirts and buckled jeans. And for this man's appearance, this time, we'll hope he's sipping a little more than that Mio and water he had the last time he was on. It's my brother, JTL. Thanks for coming back on the podcast, man. How's it going? Before we get started, let's all stop and having a moment of silence for the sport of boxing that is officially deceased in RIP. <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to say something like that. <laughs> so I, I knew you wanted, you were, you're talking to me about coming on and talking about the Jake Paul and Ben Askren fight. So I was taking notes while I was watching. My first note is just WTF with a question mark, which, you know, the kids, that means what the funk. It, 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 yesterday was just an absolute disaster. I don't even know what it was. 
Yeah, like honestly, I, I didn't watch any of the undercard fights, and we'll get to it in a minute. But leading up to it, I wanted to get your take on like the press conferences and stuff. But I didn't know what to think. I know last time when you were on the podcast, we talked about uh, you know having you come back on and break down this fight, and like I think you mentioned that you you thought Jake Paul would win. Uh, I'm not sure you thought it would go the way it did, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. But did you see the the press conferences leading up to the fight? And and it, it came off to me like Jake Paul is really, um, you know, I, I've seen him on podcasts and I've read stories on him and stuff, and he doesn't really seem like an asshole. Like that's just like his his shtick and his persona. I think he's trying to be like McGregor light. I think in, in boxing, like he, you know, he comes off as just an asshole. But he he, I don't know. He just seemed like he was. You know, he he was so you know interested, and he kind of knew he was going to win almost. And we'll probably get to that like uh, controversy. But the 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 press conference, like Ben Askren, didn't even seem like he was interested to be there. And I thought Jake Paul was kind of just making an ass out of himself, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I I'm going to be completely honest with you. I didn't waste my time to watch much of it. I did watch a little bit of the first one with a big uh, controversy over Ben Askren giving him the pie face, and he like kind of half punches him, and uh, we'll get yeah. into all that. But I just think that so Jake Paul. I don't know him personally, but I think that that's just who, like, he's he has this character, right? That every, not everyone's going to be a hero. Not everyone's going to be well-liked. Like, somebody has to be a heel. So he's coming in, and he's doing that, right? He's right. moving the needle. He's talking a bunch of noise. He's getting the press. He's getting the coverage. I mean, I mean, he won, right? No, I didn't want to watch this fight. I'm mad that it happened, but I sat down. I wasted my life. I watched it. We are talking about it. We're on the podcast talking about it. Social media is talking about it. So he won. He knows what he's doing. He can market it. He can get it done. But... I mean, at the end of the day, especially hindsight's twenty twenty. looking back at the fight, Astron was just there for a paycheck. You know, he made more money last night than he ever did in the UFC. He looked like shit. He performed like shit. He just was completely out of shape. And there's a huge difference between being in shape and being in fight shape. You know, like he just showed up and it was whatever, right? He's, he's retired. He means yeah. nothing to the UFC. He can go and get knocked out. They don't care. He's not a value to them anymore. He gets his face on TV, gets a paycheck, gets to have some fun. And, and that's what it is. I mean, he's going to go and you could just tell during the press conference, from the, at least from the parts that I watched, it just, he didn't care, right? He knew this was a gimmick. He knew this was a show. So like, he's not a character. Ben Askren isn't a character. So he's not going to just put on this persona and feed into all this for Jake Paul's sake. You know what I mean? So it was just kind of from the beginning, you could just tell this was going to be just an absolute disaster, but it, it was worse than I thought. Yeah, I mean, Jake Paul, I thought he did a good job of, he got a lot of flack last time when he beat up Nate Robinson. I mean, I think everybody knew he would win. I didn't think people thought, you know, he'd knock him out because people just didn't know his career and stuff. But he actually has been training boxing, so you you expect that when you look at it that way. But he did a good job of picking Ben Askren, like a retired UFC fighter. What's he, 36 years old, I think, something like that. Yeah. And he's, so not, Jake he's, Paul, not a, he's not a boxer either. He's not a striker. Right. And that's what and, was surprising to me. Well, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you're good. I, I was saying like, what, and that's what you said to me too, is like, it'll be interesting to see what happens because they're, you know, him entering a boxing match is taking away Ben Askren's biggest strength, which is his wrestling. And I didn't actually know how good of a wrestler he was, uh, but I saw he was like, I don't know if he's a national champion, but he was like one of the best uh, amateur wrestlers, you know, in the last 15, 20 years for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's what he made a career out of in the UFC. So like everyone talks about, Ben Askren or Jake Paul beating up an MMA fighter. Ben Askren competed in MMA and he was successful in MMA and he was a champion in MMA. But if you want to talk about breaking it down, a mixed martial artist, Ben Askren is not that. He is not a Muay Thai fighter. He is not a kickboxer. He's not a boxer. 
he's not even a jujitsu guy. He's just a wrestler, right? But he he was so skilled in wrestling that he could take you down and control the fight, and that's where he got his success. But it's just, ah, my God. I, I It was kind of weird because last time I was on the podcast, I was talking about Ben Askren's not a striker, right? And I was talking about his movement and his footwork and his angles and that he doesn't really have that movement. A, a lot of that, which I found out after the podcast, was due to a hip injury he had which he recently had surgery on before the fight. Right. And then he's going and cha uh, training with Freddie Roach, who's the best boxing coach of all time. And then Faraz Sahabi, who is the head trainer and owner of TriStar Gym in Montreal, where GSP, and he's one of GSP's coaches. He's talking about Askren being a competitor and putting pressure on him, that he's going to overwhelm him and win this fight. So the whole time I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to be embarrassed. People are listening to this podcast and they heard me go on there talking about Jake Paul's going to win. And now all these experts are going to prove me wrong. So I was having a little bit of anxiety about it, but... In the intro, that's why I said you're the you're the combat sports expert because you called it. You said that Jake Paul would win, but you know, going back to the press conference a little bit, I I know the one you're talking about with the the face palm and the face wash or whatever is the hockey yeah. community would call it. Well, I I don't want to get into that real quick because that was like yeah. the 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 star for everybody is that he pie faces him and then Paul like kind of throws like a little jab to his back and then pushes him. And everybody act like, oh, my God, what a terrible reaction from Jake Paul. He's not ready for this fight. He's not ready for a battle. Askren's going to go in there and smash him. And I, I don't know where that came from. I don't understand that at all. Like, what do you want the kid to do? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I saw people were saying, like, oh, he, the way he acted there, um, what you're talking about, you know, he might lose his cool in the, in the ring. And if something happens or they get tied up. And you actually saw it in the fight a little bit. Um, before, we, before I get to that, though, I wanted to go back and, and talk about you said he was out of fight shape. Did you hear, I don't know if it was Snoop Dogg or whoever else, Pete Davidson, I think, I can't stand Pete Davidson, but he was uh, commentating or whatever, and somebody said, like, right at the beginning of the fight, they're like, oh, uh, Ben Askren's built like a bag of milk, like, because you just, like, look at him, and he <laughs> yeah. had, like, you know, he just had, like, love handles, basically. Yeah, he, he had, just like, like he... back fat, and, like, it was, it was And Jake terrible. Paul's cut and Jack, but Jake Paul's, like, 24, he's in his prime, you know, so it was just, like, it, it was interesting, but. You know, if anybody didn't see it, and I hope you didn't waste your $50 on it, um, I didn't watch any of the undercard fights or anything like that. I couldn't have cared less at all. Uh, well, um, you missed, I mean, you missed nothing besides, so this one, this first fight, this guy, Raycon, I think is how you say his name. He had no business being in the ring. Like he, he went in there and he had his hands like glued to his cheek. And you'll see that from when Ronda Rousey got knocked out by Amanda Nunes. And it's like a, it's an amateur boxing thing. It's like when you first, your very first lesson, they teach you like, Hey, keep your hands up. So you don't get knocked out. And you just walk around like a robot, all stiff. He's doing the same thing. And then you'll see the guy who was fighting is so funny. He'll throw these jabs out, just like checking distance. And what you do is you either just let it come in because it's it's slow and, you know, it's no really harm. Or what you'll do is you'll parry it. So you like bat it down like a cat kind of. Right. It, but it's supposed to meet the punch. Right. So it's, you're not supposed to let it get to you. This guy, he would he his opponent would throw the punch. It would hit his glove. His opponent would retract his hand back to his position and, and then he would react. It was so slow. It was like 40 seconds late. And then he had no business being in there and he got decimated. But after that fight. It was two and a half hours of uh, the fucking New Year's Rockin' Eve with all these uh, <laughs> concerts going on. Like I, It was funny because I got mad at one point. I looked over my computer because I, I had it on my computer and we were watching. My, my wife and I were watching TV. And I look over and it's just concert after concert. I'm like, oh, fuck. I think I lost the stream or something happened and I'm out of the fight. It's, it was insane. What I don't know what happened or how they thought this was a good idea. but And they suckered in allegedly uh, per Jake Paul's Instagram 
um, or Twitter, whatever it was where I saw it. They suckered in 1.3 million buys for this pay-per-view and uh, $65 million in revenue. So I, like you said, I'm not sure what exactly they got paid, but I know Ben Askren secured the bag for sure. And you could see like after the fact, um, I think he got like 450k or something like that. He, yeah, like he and it was for like a minute and ten seconds of work, and I don't know how much training he really put in, but he had like a big smile and was already like he tweeted "Sorry World" with like a frowny face, like 20 minutes after he got knocked out. Um, so I, I wanted to talk about the actual fight though, Jay. Like they, um, you know, they got in and you know that everything's going on. Like they they get all started, <clears throat> and really. I was surprised because I don't know if like it, that must have been it had to be like I think we've talked about it but Ben Askren's like first time ever in any like boxing environment so like because the first time I saw them clinch you know boxing matches they clinch up constantly um, and, it, and then they like get separated by the ref or whatever he was like throwing a couple blows like when the referee was trying to trying to break him up but that was really the only action he really got and then it, for if anybody that didn't see it um, he got dropped with like I think a minute and twenty into the first round and um, he got back up. You know, he got hit hard, but he, he got back up, you know, maybe in like a few seconds. And then the referee um, was kind of talking to him like they do and checking on him. I thought he was OK, to be honest. Um, you can say what you want about, you know, concussions and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, this is fighting. So they're going to have head injuries. That's just part of the process. I did see like Jake Paul mentioned before uh, the fight in, a, in like a Zoom press conference with some media outlet that he's had brain scans done and he has like early onset CTE. And uh, so does his brother, I guess. And you could probably say the same for for all boxers and all combat, um, you know, fighters and things like that. But I was just surprised that they stopped it because he was up and he looked like he was talking to the ref and he was okay. And I do think if if they didn't stop it, Jake Paul would have went right in there and just one twoed him and gave him the old two piece and he'd have been done. But it was just it, it was interesting because a minute twenty seconds he's down and then all of a sudden all the controversy starts. Because, like, it really wasn't a huge shot. I mean, he connected good. He hit him hard, like I said. But it wasn't, like, the biggest knockout in the world, and it's over. And like you said, you you pile that on with how awful this pay-per-view was, and people are already like, wow, Ben Askren took a dive. This is bullshit. And, um, you know, so I, I was interested to see what, like, you thought about that whole thing and what your your thoughts are regarding that potential conspiracy. Well, first off, with Jake Paul's claims of a CT, so I, I don't, I've never been to one of his medical appointments. So I don't know if he's telling the truth, but I can tell you that <laughs> the way he phrases it is bullshit. So you cannot, doctors cannot detect a CTE through a brain scan. That's not the way it works. So what you can do is you can take like blood tests basically, and there's a protein that is, if it's present in your blood, shows that you have a basically a leak in your brainal fluid. And that's when they determine like, hey, you're at risk for a CTE, but they can never diagnose a CTE in, in after, until after you're deceased and you have an autopsy. So I don't know where he's getting it. It's all bullshit. <laughs> yeah, he said he had like, um, he was told that he had like severe damage to his, and I'm not a fucking biologist or whatever the hell this would be, but like uh, his frontal lobe, you know, basically of his brain, he had like severe damage to it already. I'm like, dude, you've been, you've had three fights. I mean, you're sparring a little bit, but it's not like you're, I mean, you know, it was probably from doing TikTok, not TikTok, Vine or whatever the hell he was doing. Yeah, coming up on Vine. But what did you think about the the potential that it was a controversy, like that they uh, that he took a dive and it was kind of set like a plan there? Because it, yeah. it it makes sense. I'm not sure he would do it, but then again, it is boxing. So. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, boxing is wholly corrupt, and it's always been that way to this to the point where it had to be intervened by the state and be sanctioned because of you know fixing fights and the mobs involvement. But I mean, that's old school stuff. I don't think that. It's just, you know, anytime something happens with boxing, the, everyone always jumps and says, oh, it's a fixed fight. It's a fixed fight. But I don't know. I don't think it was fixed. I don't think Ben Askren has any benefit to do that. And if he's going to fix it, you know, in the performance he had, 
I don't know why he didn't just go out there and double leg him and slam him on his head and then get to DQ and be like, ah, whatever, you know, what the hell, take his pay and leave. But I was the same way. So I, last night, I thought that I wouldn't want to say it was fixed, but definitely an early stoppage. And the way, the whole vibe of the whole night just seemed like Jake Paul put this thing on himself. Like he just scrambled up a couple million dollars and he's the owner of Triller Fight Club and did this for himself. So the whole thing was just like, Jake Paul this, Jake Paul that. Even uh, Michael Buffer announces Ben Askren as Ben Askew. Like, he didn't even get his name right. Like, they don't even give a shit that he's there. So, like, if you can, go back and watch that highlight. It's it's hysterical. But, yeah. I saw Renee Paquette, like, the old... Uh, she worked for WWE, but she's, like, an announcer. She had a great tweet. It was, like... Uh, Man, RIP to Ben Askew or whatever after the fight. <laughs> it, it was so That's funny. Shame, like, I'm like, oh, God. Like, they didn't even, couldn't even take two seconds. So maybe Michael Buffer's past his prime. Maybe, like, that was just an honest mistake or he just didn't care. But the because you text me and a bunch of other people text me right after the fight and I'm like that was an early stoppage right the fix is in like that's the whole joke but I watched right. it again this morning so what happens in boxing you get that standing eight count and then uh, they let you reset and what the ref will do is they back away and then you walk to them and they, they check your eyes check your stability all that kind of stuff from the angle from the feed that I had that I assume most people had because we we're all watching the same live stream it did it looked like the ref was standing, so his back would have been to the camera. So the ref is blocking our vision to Ben Askren. You see him take a step forward, and all of a sudden he just hugs him and waves him off. So you're like, what the hell happened? But there's an angle that I saw that was tweeted by SportsCenter on their Instagram that's a ringside angle from the perspective of facing the referee. So Ben Askren is behind you. He gets up, ref wipes his gloves off. He takes a step back, waves him forward. Ben takes one step forward and his knees just buckle. And like to the ref's credit, like he's not, he cannot go out there and defend himself. He can't intelligently fight. So I think that looking back now and seeing that it, it might, it was a good call. Like he was just walking concussion, knocked out on his feet. And like you said, wow, okay, let's let him go back and fight. And he just gets two pieced and, and that's it. The, the fight's over in five seconds later. And like, why put someone through that? Yeah, he was going to end it right after that. And then, you know, who knows what more damage is going to be done because you might hit him with two great shots and then, <laughs> then he's out like a light. But the crazy thing about it, so like you said, like Ben Askren's never been in an actual like boxing match, right? So even in MMA, you can weather some punches, close the gap, get a clinch, get some underhooks, take somebody down, push them against the cage, whatever it may be. In this case, it's not, everyone always thinks like heavy hands, powerful punchers, like that's the the key to a knockout. And And don't get me wrong, I don't want somebody with heavy hands like Mike Tyson or Francis Ngannou punching me in the head, but it's not always the heaviest punch is the one you don't see coming, right? So that's what that's what can shut your lights off real quick. So he throws, Jake Paul throws this straight jab. Well, obviously it's a straight jab. Throws a jab. Askren turns his head completely. He doesn't like try to move out of the way. doesn't slip it at all. Just turns his head completely. Paul comes back with a straight right. Askren never saw it coming and it just ate him right in the mouth, pushed him back, knocked him on his butt. And like, that's the thing. It was a powerful punch. It was a crisp punch straight down the line, but... It's just he never saw it coming. He just turns his head completely, which is fundamentally just piss poor. And that's the thing that I said in the beginning. We didn't watch him. You know, Ben Askren wasn't a mixed martial arts fighter, but he's not a mixed martial artist. Right. So what we watched last night was a slightly below average boxer fight a terrible boxer. And like, wow, OK, Jake Paul's three and oh, well, shit, I'd be three and oh, if I fought, you know, the guy who works at the deli counter down at the grocery store and then some dad at my niece's soccer game. Like I, you know, it's the same difference. 
Yeah, he he fought uh, some YouTube guy. I don't even know who it is first, and then he obviously beat up Nate Robinson and now Ben Askren. Um, before I, I wanted to ask you who you think he'll fight next, but before I bring that up, some of the boxing purists out there will probably be upset about this, but it's true. Like Jake Paul is the attraction. So like it was funny, like you said, you know, he it looked like he put it all on for himself. That's exactly what he did. I saw on his Instagram today he had a Triller Fight Club Championship belt made. So he's like wearing the championship oh, belt God. and calling and did himself. Did you the, see the Triller Championship belt? It's like this red. That yeah, red it belt. looks like it looks like you remember remember back in the day, like whenever you get a cereal box and it had the WWE belt in the back, you could like cut out <laughs> and like your mom would tape to your shirt. Like that's what it looked like. It was terrible. It looked like a piece of red cardboard that someone just drew like a championship sticker on it and then pasted it on like the Walmart iron on stuff it was horrible. yeah it had no it had no gold or anything it would look like the cheapest little piece of shit belt that's hilarious <laughs> you said you pull out the cereal box reference but that's well, exactly what it looked like, like. it, it was terrible and then like that's the other thing too is like all these title fights like i don't understand how that works either but it, and it's crazy too with all you know the boxing people so i mean even people i know that are pure boxers they don't give a shit about mma they don't give a shit about wrestling they thought last night was a spectacle all that's nonsense but there's a a video that's floating around online. I don't know if anybody saw it, but one of Jake Paul's cornermen, one of his trainers, is talking shit. Before, so you're you're allowed to watch a representative of your team is allowed to watch the other fighter get their hands wrapped. So that's just a common thing. So Tyron Woodley, who was a champion at the UFC, he was in Ben Askren's corner. He goes into the locker room to watch Jake Paul get his hands wrapped. One of Jake Paul's cornermen is like talking all this shit about him. And it's so funny because he's, he's trying to pick a fight with Tyron Woodley. And Tyron Woodley's like, dude, I don't even know who you are. Like your, your name's not worth the money. So they're going back and forth. But that's the big thing is all these boxers want MMA fighters to come in and box. They want to be in the ring. And it's like no one's talking that shit to get into a real fight. Like this guy's not going to come in a cage, get locked in a cage with Tyron Woodley, get slapped on his head, and then just get his face pounded in for 15 and 20 <laughs> seconds. Like there's no... There's no standing A count. Nobody stands you up after you get knocked down. You have a grown-ass man putting all his weight on you, smashing your face into the canvas. What, they're not signing up to do that. And it's like it's like kind of like keyboard warriors in a sense because they know like they're only going to fight him if they come into their arena. And it, it was the dumbest thing ever. Like Tyron Woodley's a bad motherfucker, dude. Like I, I wouldn't want to fight him. Well, I, clearly I wouldn't want to fight him, but you know what I mean. And this right. guy just standing there just talking this shit like he, he's somebody. And it, it, you could tell like... It was weird, too, because he seemed confused why Tyron Woodley was there. And that's just a classic thing. You can just go watch someone get their hands wrapped. It's, it was weird. The whole thing was stupid. And, like, the other thing that was odd to me was during the fight or before the fight, they had all this locker room nonsense going on with Jake Paul. Like, uh, Pete Davidson went to go back and talk to him. Yeah, uh, what was that all about? Because yeah. I, I, I avoid anything that he's in. I cannot stand Pete Davidson. But I saw he was, like interviewing Jake Paul or something and it was supposed to be like he was asking about um his alleged sexual assault case and stuff that's going on right now and allegedly I want to make sure I get that word out there too like but I was why is he even in there and then I saw uh, Ben Askren I think tweeted like I dared P Pete Davidson to come ask me a stupid question like there's something along those well, lines and, like what was that like, all about it. I don't know that's what's confusing to me like I've never seen that before and, and what's weird to me is that Jake Paul was like engaging with them talking going back and forth and right before a fight I don't care who you are, what level you are. If you're, this is your first fight down at the Bronson house or the Isoplex, you don't, you got to get in the headset, right? Or headspace. You don't want someone coming in and talking to you and bothering you. And they had Pete Davidson come back there with uh, 
Jake Harlow, Jack Harlow, whoever that rapper is. I don't remember. Jack whatever. Harlow, yeah. Yeah, so he's back there. Uh, fucking um, TikTok stars are back there. They're bringing the whole camera crew. And then he's getting his hands wrapped, and he's making bets with Tyron Woodley. It, it was absurd. Like, I don't understand what the point of it was. Number one, I don't get, like, what, what the entertainment value of any of that was. It was just awkward delivery, awkward performances. You could kind of tell that Paul didn't really want to do it, but he was doing it anyway. And then... No one there knew anything about boxing. Like, I love Snoop Dogg, but he just needs to shut the fuck up. Pete Davidson had no idea what was going on. When Oscar De La Hoya's little cameo, he sounded like he was drunk half the time. It was just like the Buffalo Wild Wings crew of commentating. I, it's exactly what you're saying. It's just like making my next point was like, it's it, it's a spectacle, like you said, but it's basically like pro wrestling. They're, like, that's the only sport where like right before the main event of WrestleMania, they go to the locker room and they get an interview from The Rock. Like they're not going to do that in a big, you know, a big fucking event. Like, well, here's the thing. Yeah, you you walk back with some C-list celebrity off of SNL with a camera crew, and you put him in John Jones' face next time he goes out to fight and see what happens. (laughs) Like, that's insane to me. Like, they have the one camera back there that's just watching him get warmed up. But speaking of WWE, like this whole thing was insane. I after one of the concerts from, and I don't know if I'm just getting old or I don't care about music anymore. But half these people performing, I had no idea who they were, and then. I, I turn, I see out of the corner of my eye, Ric Flair walking down the runway, and then he goes and starts officiating like a slap box <laughs> yes. tournament or something. Yeah. Like what the fuck? I didn't, are I didn't doing? see that. I heard about it. Well, was it, were they like slapping each other in the chest and shit? Because that's like no, the Ric Flair they, so thing like, where he does the backhand slap. No, they just stood in front of a table, and it was these two just ginormous gentlemen. They probably each weighed three hundred fifty bills. And they were just slapping each other across the face. And then this one guy knocked the other guy <laughs> unconscious. It, it was crazy. And Pete Davidson's in the Wait, back and, smoking And the Nature Boy was officiating it? Yeah. That's fucking amazing. Speaking of Pete Davidson, I know you said a couple times you didn't like him, but he did have the greatest line of the night. And right before Jake Paul came out and the lights went down and his music's playing and he starts his entrance, uh, Pete Davidson just goes, oh, we're, allowed to, uh, we're all about to get a lot dumber. And then as... <laughs> Jake Paul is walking out. He goes, I wish I was dumb as this guy because then I would just be happy all the time. And it was the funniest (laughs) thing ever. And it kind of was like him being self-aware of how insane this spectacle was and that he has no business being there. He has no idea what's going on. We have no idea what's going on. And it was just one of those moments where it's like, you know, when you get so mad and you're just so frustrated and upset and then someone says something like that, you just bust out laughing. Like it was one of those things. Like the whole night I was just getting increasingly frustrated that I wasted my time with it, watching it, paying for it. And then he says that, and then I just, I lost it, but it it was actually pretty funny. Yeah. I didn't catch that. Cause I, again, I was just tuning out all the commentating, especially Pete Davidson, but that is funny. Cause yeah, he did have like that. Jake Paul did have like that big ass, like Fox sports football looking robot, the problem robot. I think he calls it off of his, um, his fighter named the problem child. I don't know what that was or how much money that was or why he would waste his money doing that. But yeah, he's definitely, um, He's definitely a polarizing figure, man. Like you can't, you, you can say what you want about him, but he's he's making money, and I, I just think like I was gonna say before, you know, with the way it's like a pro wrestling spectacle. And Shayna Baszler, do you know who Shayna Baszler is? I don't know if she's a uh, like a women's wrestler in WWE, and she's pretty good. But I was gonna say like about the boxing purists. There uh, apparently there was another big boxing match over the weekend. I think it was, uh, I want to say, Robert Whitaker versus Kelvin Gasolum. I'm probably butchering those names, but, yeah. um, or maybe that was, no, sorry, that was a no, UFC was fight. That was, yeah, that was a, was a UFC, UFC yeah. fight last night. Yeah, so they were saying, uh, Shayna Baszler tweeted, you know, 
like about how pro wrestling is involved in everything. She's like, the fact that there's more news, you know, about Paul and Askren versus Whitaker and Gasolum shows you everything is, you know, about the show, about the spectacle and why, you know, UFC typically does that, but that's what Jake Paul is doing. He's basically just being a heel and being an asshole and yeah. getting people to react. And well, it's um, like we talked about last time. It's you got to move the needle, right? So a lot right. of people, I, I'd be surprised if more than 30% of people last night tuned in to watch Jake Paul win that fight. Everybody was tuning in with the hopes that he was going to get knocked out or Ben Askren was going to go rogue and smash him on his head or like, or just to see what it was about. But it was the same thing. Everyone tuned in to watch McGregor force uh, and Floyd Mayweather, but that ended up actually being an actual competitive match. So this was just insanity. Yeah. This was you know basically an insult to, to the sport of boxing. I thought, and uh, you know, a bad look, but we could talk about that all day. I wanted to pivot over to who you think Jake Paul might fight next. Cause he, he, in the past, and we've talked about in the last time you were on man, that he called out uh, McGregor. Uh, his brother was supposed to have a fight and still might be, I have no fucking idea with Floyd Mayweather. Um, so who knows what that's going to happen. And that's, again, that's another, just a, a couple hundred million dollar payday for uh, Floyd Mayweather that he's just going to easily get. Um, but I, I saw Jake Paul after the fight, he was calling out Nate Diaz. Um, and Nate Diaz is, you know, a badass. You know, obviously know more about him than me, but he just seems like a guy who just doesn't give a shit about anything. He'll he'll kick anybody's ass. You know, he's a tough guy. Obviously, he's taken his losses. I, I believe he's had a couple losses. I think he lost to McGregor once, right? At least once. Yeah, he beat him once and then uh, lost to him once. Yeah, so <clears throat> it'll be interesting to see. You think he, he he would have any shot, Jake Paul, in a in a boxing match against Nate Diaz? Now, again, we've talked about it. It's boxing rules, so these. MMA guys are at a serious disadvantage, yeah. but like preview, I guess what what a fight like that with Nate Diaz would be like versus a fight with Ben Askren, like how Nate Diaz is different than Askren. So both the Diaz brothers are just brawlers, right? They're fighters, and, and I know that sounds like stupid, and that's not a good way to classify somebody, but that's just how it is. Like you cannot just a stop them. Yeah, they yeah. keep coming. They'll fight anybody at any time. They'll the the UFC has their one spectacle, the BMF, which is the bad motherfucker title, and it's you know Jorge Masvidal. Nate Diaz, all those guys, but the Diaz brothers, especially Nate Diaz, are they're actually very talented strikers. And there's this video of Nick Diaz doing the uh, like the peanut, like the focus bag, like that little one, you know, like the, you see what like Rocky doing, where he's just those little rabbit punches and it's off the thing, and he's and he's doing it while smoking a blunt for just thirty minutes straight. Which not not only is that incredible to do, just skill wise but then to have the endurance to do that is, is pretty awesome but the dia uh nick diaz is, is a very talented striker but he's even a more talented jiu-jitsu fighter so his ground game is far superior than most people but he does have a very high caliber boxing pedigree so he would be able to put on a much better performance than ben Askren would and he can strike he can move he has incredible footwork he he's long and lanky so he has this control over distance that he would be able to control because Paul's what six one, six two, something like that. So he has that same height, and he like if you want to look at Diaz, it's kind of weird to see, but just physically, he just has these crazy long arms, and he understands how distance works, and closing gaps, staying out of trouble. And a, a lot of people get confused about with boxing. It's, it's you get hit, but it's all about minimizing damage. And Floyd Mayweather is incredible at this. So if I'm standing right inside your range, where it's just about that your arm would be fully extended, so that's the most of your power. If I hit you with that, it's going to hurt, right? So you look 
everyone compares fight scenes to what they see in Hollywood and all that's over exaggerated. So you miss punches by just centimeters, millimeters, right? So if I'm standing in your range, I'm going to get hit. But if I can slip, a, you know, slip your punch or just step out of the way, if you don't hit me full, like if you're overextended and you hit me, yeah, you touch me, you're, you hit me, I guess, with your punch, if you want to say, but it does nothing. That's no damage. And Diaz is incredible at that. So Anderson Silva is a good example of a defensive fighter, but just watching that, you see somebody get hit and you're like, oh, wow, he connected. That must've been, you know, a lot of damage and it must've hurt, but that's not the actual case. Cause you're taking away that velocity and that power. And that's something that Diaz is going to be able to do. And the other thing with Nate Diaz is that he's an insane person and he has an intangible, which you can't coach, which you can't develop. And that is, he's just, the more you hurt him, the more he presses, the more he's going to be an aggressor. So there's a very low possibility, very low possibility that Paul would knock him out. But I don't know if he gets that fight, right? Because you're looking at Diaz might come back and he's going to fight in the UFC again. And he wants to make one last ride at, run at a title shot. And if he's still connected with the UFC and he has value to them, what Dana White's not going to cut him loose, right? And that's what I was saying earlier with the reason Askren got this fight is because he's fucking valueless to the UFC. They didn't care at all. Like, go fight whoever you want. Yeah, I, I didn't know about uh, Ben Askren. So I, I was doing some um, research a little bit before the fight. And because, again, I'm not I'm not the most up on MMA and fighting and all that stuff. I don't pay all that much attention to it. But I saw Ben Askren, I guess at one point in, in his past, he um, was in the UFC or whatever, and then he left. He had like a little beef with Dana White, and then they kind of rekindled the flame a little bit, and he came back. But So that's interesting that you bring that up, man, because I, I didn't really think of it that way. Because you think of a, like a guy that was in the UFC, you're like, oh, he's fighting this UFC fighter. That's the one thing with UFC. They've conquered the market. I mean, there's other places to go, but everybody just assumes that, you know, all martial arts is UFC, like the casual fan, you know what I mean? So, um, that makes sense that Diaz, like, why is he going to, why is he going to do that? And why is Dana White going to be like, Hey, potentially go get beat up by a fucking YouTuber. And that makes our, our division. And like, if you're in a title picture in the UFC, it makes it look bad. So I could totally understand. He did bet Dana White did bet a million dollars, I believe on Ben Askren yeah. for that fight. And that was one of the things <laughs> that Snoop Dogg kept yelling out. He's like, give me my money, $2 million, all this nonsense. And it's like, Snoop, just shut the fuck up. But speaking of UFC, so one of the people that Jake Paul wants to fight that he's been calling out since the beginning is Dylan Danis, who fights for Bellator. And he's yeah. a real piece of shit too. Nobody likes him, but everyone in the MMA community wants to see him fight. Cause he would, I mean, he'd rock, he's a real fighter too. So he would rock um, Diaz, but or not Diaz, sorry, Jake Paul, but everyone started calling him out last night. Cause he was calling out, he'll never fight McGregor unless it becomes a huge spectacle where they all get paid $500 million. Like that's just too big of a risk uh, for everyone involved. But he was, Paul was calling out a bunch of people last night on Twitter and they're responding back and forth. But one of the interesting ones that I think might happen just because it it's so stupid was uh, BJ Penn chimed in and he's 40 some years Good old. Lord. Yeah, he's been knocked say. out his last couple fights and he's, he's retired. <laughs> he's not fighting for the UFC anymore. He's a legend, but at the same time at his prime at his top, he, he was unstoppable, right? They call him the prodigy. That was his nickname. But was he like one of the first guys on the ultimate fighter? No, he was one of the coaches eventually. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But no, he was uh, he wasn't uh, a contestant. No, he wasn't a contestant. Right. I just remember like whenever the Ultimate Fighter first came out, I have no idea if they still have that show or not. But I remember just like from you uh, um, and your brother and stuff like watching that BJ Penn was just a badass back then. 
But I, I did not expect to hear that guy's name. Yeah, so that's one of the ones, like, when I saw it, I was like, that might actually happen just because he's he's low risk, right? He's old. I don't want to say he's washed up because that's rude to say he's a legend. But I mean, when you compare it to fighters today, he's washed up, right? So he has no value to the UFC or Bellator or 1FC or whoever mixed martial arts. Like, they might bring him in just for a name, but he's not going right. to be some big headliner. So, yeah, go off and fight this YouTuber Maybe he beats him, maybe he doesn't. So, I mean, that's something that might happen, which is now really interesting to watch to see how that plays out. Yeah, I think, you know, Jake Paul's playing it well. Like, he's, you're, just like you said, man, people want to see him get his ass beat. So, like, eventually, he's going to keep building and building and building because if he gets, say he gets through a guy like BJ Penn or he fights Nate Diaz and beats him, and then some, then like these big time guys and maybe big guys in the boxing world. I don't know how many really there are, I guess, that would draw as much to, to draw um, Jake Paul in because he's not going to fight some good boxer that just boxes on like ESPN Friday night. No knock on those guys. They're great boxers, I'm sure, but they're just not box office, you know, not moving the needle, like you say. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to him because people want to see him get knocked out. Eventually he will. Eventually yeah, that's, he'll get that's beat. the problem. And that's what I said last time. It's, you know, you call out. Uh, ben Askren, yeah, he's not a boxer, but he's a, a household name, especially in the combat sports community. So where like, where do you go next? You're not going to go back to a regional circuit and fight some guy. You're just going to keep moving your way up. And yeah, you want to fight big names? Well, I'll bring BJ Penn back in. Huge name, way past his prime. Had a couple, you know, knockouts recently or being knocked out recently. So he's damaged goods, whatever. You fight him, you're on Triller Fight Club, whatever the pay-per-view sales were that you just mentioned earlier, like you're going to get to a point where that all runs out, right? And you have to fight a real fighter now, a real boxer, right? You're going to go fight Ryan Garcia, Triple G, Canelo. They're going to just decimate him. Like he, so Jake Paul has very good skill, more than you would expect him to have just based on the fact that he's a YouTuber and this social media star, influencer, whatever you want to classify him as. He has skill and he's working at it. But he's not at that level yet. And whenever he get like, and there's levels to this game. Don't make a mistake about it. Same thing with hockey, right? You can be your beer league stud and you would have went D1 if you didn't blow your knee out freshman year or whatever the hell <laughs> your story is. But you can't, you just, once you get to that extra level, you either can compete or you can't, right? And all this stuff of like, oh, well, you know, if you work hard or if you have heart, there's people who are just built different. Right. And they just have right. the genetics, yeah. they have the speed, they have the skill, they've been working at it longer and you just can't compete with them. And that's just the sad reality because if everyone could work hard, everybody would be a professional athlete. So one of these days, somebody's going to catch up to him and it's just going to expose him. And then what do we do? Right. The whole spectacle's over and the Paul brothers are no longer something we need to talk about. Yeah, it's 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 totally unrelated. And I don't mean this to be a knock on this person. Uh, but this just popped into my head. So I'd be interested to see what you think about it. But it reminds me a lot of Ronda Rousey. Now, Ronda Rousey was obviously a badass. Like, she was an absolute stud in there, like, just at, at her point. But she was so good and kicking everybody's ass and knocking people out and blah, 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 all that shit, right? And then she got fucking crushed. She got dummied. And well, then nobody gave up, a shit Ronda about Ronda Rousey her. never knocked anybody out. Let's just well, be clear on arm that. arm bars and yeah. whatever you want to call it. I'm talking, like, submitted people and stuff like that. And she, she was a force to be reckoned with. You can't knock her, but, but whenever she ultimately got beat up, I can't remember, was it Holly Holm or whoever knocked yeah, her so out Holly first Holm or knocked, beat her first? Yeah, Holly Holm knocked her out first. And then Amanda Nunes just walked right through her. But Amanda Nunes is, so is the best female fighter of all time. And she's, if you want to break it down, just skill wise, she's one of the best all time, most dominant for sure. But, and it's the same thing. It's, she had her one skill, which was that she is a Olympic level 
judo practitioner. And that's, that's just a fact. And she also benefited from the fact that women in MMA at the time, there wasn't really much to, there wasn't much of a talent pool. And I don't, I don't mean that disparagingly to women in MMA because there's now there's women who are just absolute savages. And I mean that in the most positive way that I can say that, that they are just absolute athletes. They're skilled, they're martial artists, they're, they're just <laughs> savages. And, and that's a positive yeah. thing to say for in, in the combat sports vernacular. But she, she benefited from the fact that nobody could compete with her level of judo. She could take them to the ground, arm bar them, do whatever. She walked through Misha Tate a couple times. And as she progressed, so did women in MMA. But the other problem was Dana White for the longest time was like, women are never going to fight in the UFC. Women are never going to fight in the UFC. Brings Ronda Rousey over. She's a big draw. Sells out a lot of pay-per-views. They can put her on posters. You put her out there and she draws people in, right? People want to watch her get beat up. People want to watch her just fight, whatever the case may be. But now you open it up to other women need to come into the UFC to fight her and she gets exposed, right? Holly Holm is a national champion in kickboxing and that's exactly what she did. She went out there. She was able to defend against Ronda Rousey's one aspect of her game, which was the clinch, throw you to the ground, and now you're in her world. You can do nothing about it. And she just exposed her. She was slipping. She was uh, stuffing takedowns. There's the one image that always sticks out in my mind is that Ronda Rousey is panicking and she rushes her. And Holly Holm does this like just kind of like shoulder shrug juke almost. And she shoots for a takedown, completely misses, falls on one knee, face plants into the cage, gets up and turns <laughs> around. And you can just see like the shock on her face like what the fuck do I do? Like she's never been in that situation. And that's kind of what's right. going to happen to Paul when you have somebody who's taking him into later rounds that's putting pressure on him, that's actually going back and forth with him and making him think, making him defend himself. And it's just going to be, what the fuck do I do? Yeah, that's that's a great point, man. And that's why you're the, the combat sports expert on the Rambling Bruce podcast. Because like when she went to WWE, Ronda Rousey, you know, nobody cared about her because she had been beat. So we'll see what happens, you know, potentially could happen to Jake Paul once he ultimately gets beat. It's inevitable. He's going to get beat. He's going to run into somebody he shouldn't have. You know, he's going to yeah. bite off more than he can chew. And then, you know, we'll see what happens because I don't think he's going to fight McGregor, like you said. And and speaking of McGregor, he's got his own problems right now with uh, Dustin Poirier. They're supposed to be fighting, right? I saw the fight was on and then yeah. they had some issue where McGregor was supposed to donate money to Poirier's charity and then something didn't happen. And they were going back and forth on Twitter last weekend. And then McGregor said, I'm not fighting this fucking guy. And then, like, a day later, I saw Dana White confirmed that they're fighting. Is it July 10th or something yeah, like July that? Yeah, July 10th in Vegas. So, yeah, that yeah was the full capacity, like, oh, man. Full capacity there, too. I, I don't know what the attendance was at the Triller event, but at, the, at least at the UFC event, it's going to be full capacity. So it should yeah. be cool to see uh, whatever your feelings sold, are on, yeah, yeah, on COVID. On like seconds or whatever. I, I mean, it is what it is at this point. I mean, if you... If if you're the person who wants to go and, and you get sick, that, that's on you, man. What are you going to do? So, But it, the bigger thing is what I'm nervous about, uh, just as a fan, is that whenever they do these events, they have the press conference, the weigh-ins, uh, the the meet and greets with other individuals who aren't fighting, but members of their team or you know other fighters who are just in the area. My understanding is all those things are still going to happen at capacity with fans. So before the event so it'll be friday night after the weigh-ins they'll redo a covid test what if one of these idiots comes walking in and and gives covid to one like poirier or mcgregor or something like that then the whole fight's off that's what kind of concerns me I, and that's just me being a little 
pessimistic and anxious about it, but I, I guarantee they're going to have some kind of protocol for that. But it's something th- to think about in, in the world of COVID. But yeah, I mean, that seems like a big risk to me. Like you're risking your pay-per-view to like have fans come screw it up or somebody it doesn't have to be a fan. I don't want to knock the fan, but for if McGregor or Poirier, like you said, gets COVID or has a positive test, you know, what happens? It's not like they're in fight Island in Dubai or wherever the hell they were before, but like, and they're in Vegas, you know, they're going to have camps there. It, it makes maybe, and I don't know if they could even possibly do this, I guess, depending on the outcome of the fight, but maybe you do like that camp thing after the fight. I, I just feel like it's a risk and you're potentially jeopardizing it. I'm not Dana White. I'm not the UFC. I'm, they're smarter than me. In yeah, terms of I mean, they have, they have risk leading up to it anyway, because like you just don't roll around in your house on Zoom training for a fight. So they go into the gym <laughs> and they have training partners come in and people to mirror their opponent. So the whole thing is just nail biting all the way up to it, but they figured it out long enough that, you know, people have been staying safe and staying healthy. So hopefully that continues. But yeah, I was following that whole thing too. And it, it was funny that McGregor's like, he's, he's tweeting so like coherently where he's like, Hey, we, we wanted to get the money. We told your people to reach out to us. They never gave us an address. And then Poye is like, what the hell are you talking about? We told you to give it to this donation to my, uh, my cause. And then McGregor fires back with, look, I have a lot of money and you don't. And I know where every single dime of my money goes and I keep it on the books. I have an accountant. And like that was like the exchange. And all of a sudden McGregor comes out of nowhere with all these like uh, Irish like like <laughs> slang terms. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? Like it made no sense. But yeah, he went off. Uh, yeah, it was end, off man. and then it was back on. So and that might just be something to build up the fight. But. We'll we'll see what happens. Yeah, because like we be talked about it last time when you were on, man. Like how we were surprised that McGregor was like so nice after the fight last time, and like he was like hugging with Poirier and all that shit, and like everything seemed to be like McGregor was turning over a new leaf and not going to be that prick anymore. And and now maybe maybe you're right. Maybe they're just trying to build up the fight. I guess. How do you think that fight's going to go? Oh, it's going to be interesting to see because one of the things that McGregor was uh, talking about was that he's got to go back to his basics, focus on what got him to the top, and kind of just do a 180 of what he's been doing, which is really surprising to me because I don't know why he would do that. Uh, I mean, I'm not him. I don't know what's going on in his head, but he's been in same thing with Poirier. This isn't like a mental test. He didn't quit that fight. It wasn't that he got into a position and he was just being overwhelmed and dominated and just gave up and was just trying to survive. That's not what happened at all. So they both had highs and lows. They both lost in this sport and then rebounded and bounced back and made adjustments. So for him to pull this, like, I need to be back to basics, get in the right mindset. It was kind of surprising because I don't consider this to be a physical or a mental battle at all. It's more physical uh, just based on what happened in the first fight. So it, it'll be interesting to see, especially with, the whole thing with these calf kicks, right? So that was a big thing in their their first fight. So Benson Henderson kind of, I would say, introduced calf kicks to MMA. They, they've been around for a long time, but he was one of the guys that, that brought it in uh, and kind of made it mainstream. And Poirier used that to his advantage in the, in the first fight. But when you look at it, so with calf kicks, it's with thigh kicks really is is coming from Muay Thai. And that's something that takes your power away. So you have... Your quads is what you use to step off and get power. The more thigh kicks you have, the less power you can have. So so someone throws a kick, one of the counters to it is you can just throw a, a straight right down the middle, and that's a defense, right? And you just hit them right in the head. So that's it'll get them to second guess whenever they throw a kick. But it's it's dangerous in the same sense, just kicks in general, because 
it's a good way for timing and distance and also a distraction, right? You throw a kick and then their eyes are looking down or they're reacting to it, depending on how much damage that you're exhibiting. But, uh, and then you can throw your hands, but throwing a kick is dangerous in the sense that when you throw a kick, you're stationary, you can't move, right? One foot is off the ground. One foot is on the ground and it's just more of a balance thing than anything. So you throw that kick, you're in a dangerous position. So with, with a thigh kick, right, one of the things you can do is you lift up your leg and you check it. And you'll see MMA fighters do that a lot. You'll see them just kind of lift up their leg and you and it looks like they're kicking them in the shin. And it, more or less, that's what it is. But you're turning your leg to the outside. So it's like a like a hard surface, right? It, it dissipates that energy back. So if you check a kick the correct way, it's going to hurt your opponent just as much, if not more, than it hurt you. So uh, there's this whole thing on how to defend the these calf kicks, right? You can just bring it up and block it. Uh, you're basically just redirecting that force. GSP was on the Joe Rogan podcast recently, and he talked about how he has a defense to it where he'll lift his leg up and kind of put his heel towards his butt and turn around, and then the kick ends up hitting you in the heel. But it, it, whatever, whatever it is, these calf kicks, these thigh kicks, the biggest thing is that it stops your progress going forward, and it sets up strikes, and it, it makes you second-guess your positioning and your timing. The problem with... Uh, McGregor and Poirier is that he did Poirier did so much damage on these calf kicks that it took away Connor's power. It took away his ability to defend himself to the point where now Poirier got on top of him, knocked him out. End of story. We know how that goes. But the damage is one thing, right? We know his leg has been damaged. But now the question is, where did it come from? How did he set it up? How did he use that to his advantage? How was McGregor unable to adjust to that? Because McGregor is the king of adjustments. He's great at that. If he has a bad uh, bad fight, and we saw it with the Diaz fight that we were talking about earlier, he's able to make those adjustments. The problem is his coaches only have basically six minutes of film to go off of for the to make the adjustments. There's not much out there, right? This was something that Poirier used to his advantage in this one fight, got knocked out pretty early in the second round. So they don't have much to go off of. And it's not like Poirier is just going to sit around and say, let's go out and do the exact same thing the first that we did on the first time. So that's not going to happen either. We'll have to have you come back on for that. Um, you know, that the, I guess the result of that fight, maybe talk about, I guess, whatever happens, whatever the result is, how it impacts McGregor's career. Cause based on, you know, what you were talking about and, and you know, what we were just discussed, I would probably put a decent bit of money on uh, Poirier to win again. Um, I'm glad you brought up the Joe Rogan podcast. Uh, Cause Joe Rogan, great podcast. Obviously everybody knows it's great, but um, I watched an episode. I had a little bit of a beef with uh, Joe Rogan a little bit. Um, you know, obviously not a real beef cause fuck, he doesn't even know who I am or doesn't give a shit. But um <laughs> You know, and I know you're a fan of Joe Rogan's in, in the podcast, but he had The Undertaker on, uh, Mark Calloway, recently. Um, and so we were talking a little bit about WWE. And he, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from to my knowledge, Joe Rogan has shit all over professional wrestling for a very long time. Like, you know, he always makes little snide remarks like, how could a grown man enjoy this? And blah, 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 blah. And then Taker's on there, and Taker's a big fucking guy. I mean, he's, he's huge. He's 6'10, 330. Maybe he's a little bit bigger now. He's a little bit older, but. Dude, like, he, it just seemed like Joe Rogan was just, like, bowing to this guy. Like, he just seemed like he was just tossing up softball questions, and he was just in awe of him. And then I've seen um, I've seen interviews where I don't know what the guy's name is. It's one of the guys that's always on Rogan's podcast. But they were watching, like, old Ric Flair videos of Ric, uh, Ric Flair promos and stuff like that, which are great because Ric Flair is some of the best promos of all time. Like, whenever he tells guys that, you know, 
I saw one the other day. It was like Ric Flair was like doing an interview and he's like, I'm the world champion. I that's why I have an eight hundred dollar sport coat. And he points at this guy, he's like, That that sport coat costs two hundred dollars. And he looks at the other guy, he goes, And I don't know what that costs. I'd be ashamed to wear it. And like it was fucking hilarious. But like Rogan and this guy are just laughing at all these Ric Flair promos and stuff. But like what's the I guess I don't understand. Like what what is your perspective on that? Like how he hates pro wrestling so bad, but then he's like you know, just like real friendly with the Undertaker and wouldn't say any of that stuff to the Undertaker because the Undertaker honestly would probably slap the shit out of him because he's one of those old school guys that's like, you know, respects the hell out of the business and stuff. I always wondered what your thought was as like a non-traditional uh, or a non-wrestling fan, really a pro wrestling fan versus an MMA guy, like what your what your take is on Joe Rogan, you know, hating on pro wrestling and then also like just, I guess, MMA versus pro wrestling in general. So I think just from listening to a lot of the Rogan podcasts and just following him on social media, like you have to separate the WWE from the performers, right? So he gives those guys a lot of credit for what they do. Like he thinks that they put their bodies on the line, they go out there, they do their thing, they're athletic, they're performers, and he gives them credit for that. But WWE as an organization, as a gimmick, he does talk a lot of shit about it just because he thinks it's in his own words, it's just silly, right? Like it, it's over the top. It's not like a real fight and they go out there and they have these scripted uh, cameos and, and back and forth that are just like these love stories and these fake beefs. And then you'll have, and like how you were talking about on one of your episodes with, uh, with Shaq or with uh, Shaq, Whenever he gets thrown through a table, he gets like he's knocked out. They put him on a stretcher. Four minutes later, they open up the ambulance and he runs out the back. So it's like things like that where he just he laughs about it because he's like, who the fuck would ever buy into this? You know, we're supposed to believe that Shaquille O'Neal gets thrown through a table and he's fighting for his life. And then 10 seconds later, in front of everybody, he runs out of the back of the ambulance. You know what I mean? So he does give people credit for putting their bodies on the line and, and putting in the work and being athletic and working out and and doing all those things so i guess whenever the undertaker's there he looks at him as the the person that you were this guy who performed for what what, 25 years maybe it probably a little bit longer and countless nights went out there did what you had to do you're one of the most iconic characters in your sport so as a human being i have respect for you but at what you did is just silly and, and yeah. that's how I look at it. So it wasn't, more, it was more of, and like, if you watch the podcast too, I think from what I read online, a lot of, it's kind of reverse, right? You call me an MMA purist. Well, all the WWE purists were mad that it was more about the undertaker as a person than it was about him as a character. Yeah. I mean, like, and I don't get that. I don't get why people would be mad. I mean, what's he going to like, obviously there were a lot of parts of the podcast. I watched the whole thing like that. He, they talked about the undertaker, how he came, how he got into wrestling, how he came up with the gimmick or he didn't come up with it. Um, Vince McMahon came up with the gimmick, but I don't know what they would be expecting. Like, what are they supposed to do? Just rehash every moment he's ever had in his career. Like it's yeah. about, it, well, I mean, he didn't Undertaker's come on never, as, as a character, you know what I mean? Like, he yeah, that's the most surprising thing, and, man. The Undertaker has never done interviews like that. That's what's so shocking to me is like it, now he's finally pulling back the curtain a little bit because he is, to your point, one of those old school guys. And it's been 30 years. He's, he debuted in 91, but I think it's 91. But I believe it's been 30 years because he just had his last match um, last or this past year. And he's like one of those guys that really respected the business so much to the point where he never wore anything but black. He was always in character. Um, you know, he wouldn't sell anything. I read a story that he got, uh, he got out of a cab at a hotel and he, the cab driver slammed his fingers in the door 
And he like just looked at him and he's just looking at him and the cab driver's like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. And then he just opened the door and, and he just like didn't do anything, didn't sell it at all. And then just grabs his bags and walks into the hotel. And then when he gets back into his room, he's like, Oh motherfucker. He's like grabbing his hand, but he was so into his gimmick and wanted to make him look strong and stuff. And like, to your point, I think the WWE now, because mainly because Vince McMahon thought he was Walt Disney, like he wanted to become Disney on ice. Basically, he wants to take over the world. He wants to be. That's why they they anybody that comes in there now, they're given a new name. Doesn't matter unless you're like a massive star, like you're CM Punk or something. You're a huge star in the independent scene and stuff. You come into WWE now, they want to create a new name, a new persona, new move styles, all that stuff, new move sets, and they don't. They they want the corporation WWE to be the most well known thing, and where they. I guess where they lose the traditional wrestling fans is because there were people back in the day, and this might sound funny to some people that listen to this podcast that don't realize this, but there were events back in the day where people actually believed this shit so much to the point where they would like jump over the rail and risk going to jail to try to help their like hero out. Like if he was being like choked with a rope or something by the bad guy, they would fucking like jump the rail and stuff. So it's not the pro wrestling side of it is not all like phony bullshit but wwe is mostly known for that they're they're literally like disney on ice they're out there with like you said man stupid ass storylines and like love stories but, I mean, it's and, like i mean that's what you but it's you a show get, you know what i mean yeah you gotta know what you're getting into that's the thing it's like i'm not it, it's scripted the the storyline is scripted right the conclusion is scripted but they're still out there like with mick foley right i mean he still is falling off the top of a ring onto barbed wire cutting his face with a razor blade like that shit's still happening you got to give people credit for that but uh, speaking of Disney on Ice, I, I think that that's one of the the criticisms that I took away from that podcast was he was talking a lot. They talked about uh, you know a couple wrestlers who died prematurely and people's uh, struggles with yeah. substance abuse and addiction, and they they kind of transitioned into like back in the early '90s, or I guess yeah, early night throughout the '90s and then early 2000s. Even back when I was watching wrestling, and I'll admit I haven't watched wrestling since your dad took us to see that Monday Night Raw at uh, the Civic Arena or whatever. <laughs> but I, whenever we made him buy those John Cena jerseys, oh, those yeah, camo dude, the chain gang, baby. Yeah. Chain gang. <laughs> so I haven't watched since since then. But he was talking. I, I one of the comments he made something was like, "That's when like men were men," but he didn't mean it in a sexist way. It was more of like the over the years, the WWE has become more PG, right? And I think just the product that they're trying to sell, it's hard to do that, right? It needs to be a little edgy. It needs to be a little risky. Uh, it needs to be more in your face, at, at least in my opinion, right? And yeah, that, you got to push the envelope, man. It. I've said it on the podcast before too. Like they're just so geared towards kids and they're, they run an anti-bullying campaign. They're anti-bully, anti-bully, which you should be. I mean, I, everybody should be anti-bully. You can get behind a cause like that. But yeah, well, then bring the a bully on and let show, him get his ass kicked, you know? Yeah, you could do that. or like. But the premise of the show is like personalized storylines where people have a, a, a perceived legitimate beef with each other. So it's, it's very hard to like, and I, we can get into it, you know, a lot. And I've got into it on previous episodes, but they have nowadays with like social media and stuff. Like, Jay, if me and you were like wrestling in WWE and we're like, you're the bad guy and I'm the good guy. There's no reason that like we should be trading barbs on, on, um, you know, on live TV, wrestling, I'm hitting you over the head of the steel chair, you're hitting me, whatever the case is. And then, like, afterwards, me and you are just, like, hanging out watching football at your house, like, on and posting it on Instagram. Like, it's it's very difficult to believe now, and you can't put the toothpaste 
back in the tube, so to speak. But like, nobody thinks that wrestling's real, but it's just like, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because that, that makes perfect sense that he's talking about it. It just being silly because that's what WWE has turned wrestling into. I'm not asking people yeah. to think back to 1985 and Ric Flair versus Ricky, the dragon steamboat. And so it's never, that's not going to come back. But like, like I remember being like 11 years old and triple H married uh vince mcmahon's daughter and vince mcmahon and triple h hated each other and i was like oh man that's gonna be crazy <laughs> how are they ever gonna have holidays together like i was you like took her through like a vegas it. drive through yeah, the wedding like, <laughs> like i remember like like those storylines i remember like i'm 11 years old like so i was a huge uh heartbreak kid fan so Shawn michaels was my dude oh and, yeah but that I'm just throwing that out there because I don't know if that means I'm a good wrestling fan or a bad wrestling fan. You guys be the judge. But like it was like storylines like that. I remember. And then uh, what was the big rumor that Kane and the Undertaker were brothers? Like all this kind of crazy shit that we were buying into. But now I, I don't even. You, I a, a professional wrestler could walk up and spit in my face, and I wouldn't even have any idea who they are. <laughs> well, that's the that's the biggest problem. Like with wrestling is they can't build new stars. And that's the point I was just making. WWE wants control over everything. They want to be the star, not the wrestlers. So that's why you see time and time again, Stone Cold comes back, The Rock comes back, you know, HBK, like you said, comes back. Even Triple H, those guys, they get the biggest pop from the crowd. They're the most over guy there. And they're they're there. Like Stone Cold's there once every four or five years. Like it, it, it's it's stupid. And WWE's really has, you know, has to blame themselves for the way wrestling is. But what do they care? They're making billions of dollars. They're, they're all the kids love them. They're selling merchandise for John Cena with like, you know, fruity pebble color shirts that say "Never give up on them and stuff. And then that that's hey, if that's what they want to do. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I respect Joe Rogan's opinion, obviously, and I'm glad you mentioned it. It was just about you know Mark Calloway, the Undertaker, the guy, not necessarily the wrestling in general. And I just felt like it was almost a. It was, I was surprised Undertaker didn't say anything just because like. Yeah, you could be bashing WWE and bashing pro wrestling and saying it's silly, but that'd be the same thing as like, like because they're they're bashing, they're not bashing the guy personally, like you said, but they're bat he's bashing their like livelihood and the way they earn their living. So well, like, he gets into that stuff all the time. Like he'll talk about like uh, he'll he'll show these clips of like traditional martial arts or like uh, Tai Chi or those those people who kind of just like Dragon Ball Z throw air at people and it bounces them back. And he has a whole segment about how they just put that on there and make fun of those kind of guys. And he, he puts the, the WWE in that category in the sense that like the storylines are over the top and it makes no sense. But what he, I think what, I, I don't want to say what bothers him, but the stuff that he loves to pick on is the people who buy into it. Because like he looks at those fake martial arts and he's like, who the hell is paying money to go and get trained by this guy or who, who a grown adult looks at that and says, this is a viable defense mechanism. And I think he just, I think he just likes to make fun of people. Cause that's the same thing. Like there's always that one clip that went viral 15 years ago, the guy crying in the school gym. He's like, it's still real to me. Damn it. It's, and it's like, when you think of those guys, like they buy into it so much that it's just silly. But I mean, it is what it is. I wouldn't do that because, look, I'm the kind of person that whatever makes you happy, whatever you're into, as long as it doesn't bother me or affect me personally, then just go do it. You know what I mean? If yeah. that's what you want to do is go home and that those people are real to you and, and those characters are real, then fuck it, man. Like, go enjoy it. I don't care. Yeah, the last thing I'll say about it before I come off as a wrestling nerd and that guy sitting in the bleachers you just referenced is, to me, it's almost the same as, like, movies. Like, you know that Tony Stark's not real in Iron Man. Like, he's, you know, he's not. But you buy into it cause you, and you get excited about the story. If if it's a legitimate, like, exciting thing that is, like, intriguing and they're like, oh, shit, you know, 
But like wrestling just failed to do that for the last but, 20 years. It's just, but, that's just I mean, the, that's the thing too. I mean, I don't, so my opinion uh, for whatever that's worth is I look at it no different than a sporting event. Like there is absolutely no reason for me to have my day and attitude affected if the Pittsburgh Penguins or the Pittsburgh Steelers lose a game. That what the hell? I'm not on the team. This isn't my livelihood. <laughs> and it affects my job. Not and it's the same thing. Like no one ever. If I got in a bad mood because the Pens lost today, no one's gonna like second guess that or question me about it. I'm like, yeah, man, fuck, man. Sports are passionate. But if I go on and I'm like, oh, did you see that? You know, whatever I say, I don't even know any wrestlers' names. Like, hey, oh, so and so, and is going to have a match with blah 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 and whatever. Like, everyone looks at them like they're they're crazy people. Like, they're talking about anime or My Little Pony or something. But it's just like, <laughs> who like who cares? You know what I mean? Like, there's no difference. But yeah, it doesn't. It, it is whatever whatever makes you happy. You know, if that's what you want to do, like get into it, get into it. Yeah, I'll say too, like because I I have been not as much recently, uh, maybe just because I'm old now, over the age of thirty here, but you know i used to be it like like that like you would say like if the penguins lost a game especially a playoff game like i'm in a bad mood i'm not like angry i'm just you know and my wife knows this i'm just like i just don't talk to me like i don't i'm i'm pissed like i'm that that's how i kind of still am like that but not as much but i totally get what you're saying because especially with wrestling like i like wrestling i watch wrestling i don't give a shit about any of the wrestlers now like maybe back like you said when i was little and you know Stone Cold ran over the Rock's car with a monster truck, and I, you know, if I was a Rock fan, I felt bad for him, you know. But like, there's just nothing like that out there now for for uh, for anybody to to enjoy because it's so bullshit PG. Yeah. Like these Hollywood writers write everything, and it's just stupid, unbelievable. Like it, it, nobody can possibly buy into it, and they got a 77 or whatever he is old year old man Vince McMahon running the show, and he's still like, he just he I don't know. It's just it's just a whole crazy dynamic. So I I respect Joe Rogan's uh, thoughts. I I just was. You know, just interested with what you and thought it's like, about it. Yeah, and like I don't know if it's because I don't watch wrestling anymore, and it's like I'm not I'm out of touch with it because I just don't follow it. But I remember being a little kid, and I would lay on the floor in my parents' bedroom because I didn't have a TV in my room, so I'd go in there, and my dad would let me watch Monday Night Raw, and it would be <laughs> like 10:30 at night, and I'm a little kid, I should be asleep, and I remember like I would hear that glass break and Stone Cold's coming out, and I would get so excited, I'd stand up and I would fucking shake like with just a pure excitement like it was christmas eve or something yeah and like i remember the crowd going just nuts and loud and you could hear the energy on the tv and like part of me is like there if there was somebody that was of that magnitude today we would know about them but i feel like there isn't you know what i mean like that's all gone all the nostalgia all the magic of whatever pro wrestling was in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s like i just maybe and this is just me saying it because because i just don't know but you correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that's gone. Like there's nothing. Yeah, like you're, that. you're exactly right, man. It's just like, it's just not, it's not, um, spontaneous anymore back in the day. And the last thing I guess, you know, we can say on wrestling and is that, you know, like you said, every Monday night, you didn't know what was going to happen. Like, and part of it is because they are WCW to compete with. So they had to be like creative constantly. Like you, you didn't know what was going to happen. So you had to tune in. I mean, my, my dad would have friends over my mom, my sister, me, we'd all watch wrestling. We'd beg my dad to stay up and watch the main event of Monday Night Raw because, like you said, it was on till 11 o'clock on Monday nights, and we'd watch it. But now it's like they have no competition, really. So, like, they have no reason to, like, make it must-see TV. They're getting guaranteed money from networks. 
they're getting guaranteed money from people subscribing to the WWE Network or now. What Peacock. are they on TV? Are they is it still USA Network or what are they? On they're now? on USA Network on Monday nights for Raw. They're on um, USA Network also on Tuesday nights now for NXT, which is like their developmental. Then Friday night they're on um, Fox for SmackDown, like actual like main Fox. So they've got a lot of TV coverage, but like, and they're getting big money from those people, but like they don't have to. Because they're getting guaranteed money. They don't have to sell tickets. Like, they don't care if anybody watches. I'm sure the networks will get upset. But they have, like, 10-year deals with these networks. Like, they're 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 make, making a lot of money. And they're going to continue to make money whether people actually watch it or not. Because nobody's no, – there's never been less people watching wrestling than there are today. It's like the Buckos, right? I mean, they're fucking atrocious. But people still go out and buy the merchandise. And they're making a million dollars. So it's like, who cares? Like, as long as you're making the money, if you're even if your product's bad, if you're making money, you're making money. Yeah, exactly, man. But hey, dude, this was awesome. I really appreciate you coming on. We'll have to have you back again yeah. when the uh, Poirier and uh, and McGregor fight happens, or, and, and hopefully, yeah. uh, you know, a couple more times going forward. I did want to mention before we we sign off is uh, you've got a podcast coming out, correct? Yep, it's called Wasted Education, and uh, it's been about a year in the making, but all <laughs> the all the episodes aren't ready for public consumption, so I've been trashing them. So yeah, but it's called Wasted Education. Um, you'll be on a guest uh, soon enough, so plug it. Give it a listen. Don't give it a listen. I don't care. I'm just doing it for fun. So it'll, yeah, it'll be something. Wait. And it's not going to be, speaking of Joe Rogan, it, it's modeled after that. It's it's not going to be anything specific. It's just if you're an interesting person and want to come on and talk and learn something new, then come on, You know, send me a message and we'll make it happen. But it's not anything specific. There's going to be a lot of talk about MMA and sports and you know just life in general. So yeah, man. Can't wait to come on. Dude, that's going to be awesome. Sounds great. Uh, hopefully all the listeners here will will tune into that as well. And I'll definitely keep them updated when that stuff's dropping and stuff like that. It's, it's awesome. It's a blast having a podcast. So pretty cool you're doing that. And again, I appreciate you coming on, man. It was awesome. And I think people will really like it. I appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to the, the next fight. So, I mean, being an MMA expert for the Rambling Brews podcast, I got McGregor's my lifeline. And then hopefully John Jones comes back or I'm not ever going to have anything to talk about. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there'll be another star that pops up. We'll get you back on no matter what, man. I appreciate right, man. it. I appreciate it. Yep. Yep. Take care. Man, I hope you guys enjoyed the hell out of that interview with my buddy JTL. We don't call him the Rambling Bruise Podcast, combat sports expert for nothing. It was a great breakdown, and I had a great time. So, again, hope you guys enjoyed that. The last thing I wanted to mention this week on the podcast was the documentary that I watched this past week with my wife on the icon, my favorite wrestler of all time, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh, it was on A&E TV. It's part of the A&E Biography Series. I believe they're doing a couple wrestlers because next week they're doing Rowdy Roddy Piper. Um, but this week it was Stone Cold Steve Austin. It was a two-hour special. It was unbelievable. They talked about his upbringing, him being born in Austin, Texas, and then moving to a small town, Edna, Texas. Um, and they had his family, his brothers, his sister uh, talk about him and, and how they where they grew up and how he got into wrestling. And he was watching Houston wrestling on TV. He really got hooked on it. And he told people from a young age he was going to be a pro wrestler. Um, he was a phenomenal football player. He had a, I believe it was North Texas State College he played uh, running back and, and linebacker there. Um, and then ultimately he got into the professional wrestling business and they, they showed his, the way he grinded in Memphis and he lived in a hotel and all he could eat was, uh, it was pretty crazy actually what he described what he ate uh, because all he could afford to eat was raw potatoes. Like he couldn't even cook the potatoes. He just had to eat them. He peel them and eat them raw and eat tuna fish out of a can. That's all he could afford to eat. And, um, just thinking about that from where he is now and where he got in WWF and, you know, his run and how white hot he got, 
to where he was when he started is pretty remarkable to see, but it was awesome. It talked about the ups and downs, the trials and tribulations of his life, his personal life. He had two daughters who he was never really around. And now he talks about, which I knew he had kids, but I never really knew the story behind it because he's a very private guy. And they talked about this in the documentary, but he's trying to like work on his relationship with his kids. I think they were born back in like 2002, 2003. It was pretty sad, man. It was like, it was similar to the Ric Flair 30 for 30. Not as bad because Ric Flair was just, you know, a little bit different situation, but it was sad because he mentioned, you know, my baby was born and I was in uh, New York city. I flew home. She was born that night. I got to hold her. I gave her a bottle and then I put her, you know, put her down and I was on a flight to Pittsburgh and I, I was wrestling that night and he never really saw them. He got divorced so much. So like his family went over to, uh, England and they ended up staying over there. And like, he talked about how his kid, you, you know, his daughter, you know, after a while being in England, he would talk to her on the phone and she completely lost her Texas accent and she had a, an English accent and it just made him cry like a baby and stuff. And it was pretty, pretty emotional to, uh, you know, to see him open up like that because you never really saw that stuff. You always saw this, this guy on TV and he talks about it in the documentary, how like TV is such a small part of wrestling that you have all the same personal problems that everybody else in the world does. And it was really awesome to see him open up and, you know, learn more about my favorite athletes. So I would really highly recommend, even if you're not a professional wrestling fan or you didn't watch Stone Cold Steve Austin back then, I think it will definitely give you more of a respect for the professional wrestling business and what those guys endure and what they put, you know, what they put into it and how much time they put into it. But it was cool. They talked about, you know, his, how he rose to the top, how when he got to WWE, he really didn't have a gimmick. Vince McMahon basically says in the documentary that when Stone Cold got there, you know, he looked at him as a, a basically this is a waste of time for him because this guy doesn't have it. His, his gimmick stinks, and he came up with his own gimmick, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh, really, just created the own, the character himself and rose to the top of the professional wrestling business and made it you know as successful as it was in the '90s. I think people don't realize how much of a global star he was and like he couldn't go anywhere. And those wrestlers at the top too, like the rock and triple H and those guys couldn't go anywhere, but they really owe it all to stone cold, Steve Austin at the beginning. And they, they show that they're the rock triple H, you know, those guys are all in the documentary. So it's pretty awesome to see. Um, so I, again, I would highly recommend that, that documentary again, it's on a and E TV. Um, and it's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. And I would, again, the biggest swig of beer, and Rambling Brews podcast history has to be for the Texas Rattlesnake, Stone Cold Steve Austin. And on that note, I hope you guys have an outstanding weekend. I hope you guys crush some cold Coors Lights. And remember, if I don't see you around here, I'll see you around. Here. Well, I'm packing up my game and I'm going head out west Where real women come equipped with scripts and fake press Find a nest in the hills, chill like Flint Buy an old drop top, find a spot to pimp Then I'm a kid, rock it up and down your block Go with a bottle of scotch and watch lots of crotch 